Yeah. So uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens yeah. and the earth. There's actually an interesting thing about that, that it's actually literally in the Hebrew in a beginning, not in the beginning, because the definite article is missing, yep. uh, which is you drop that at a Bible study and watch everyone lose their minds. Look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I never gave you hands. If I can't give them back to you. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast, the podcast dedicated to those deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. I'm your host, Luke Byler, and today I got a special episode. It was a surprise. So I had a gentleman named Daniel contact me through um, a comment on one of my YouTube videos, my video I did about seminary, and he said he's been having some of the same ideas that I expressed in that video. He asked for my email. I gave him the email for the um, podcast that I will put down here uh, so that any of you who happen to see this might be curious about this can also email me feel free I love hearing from you all but Daniel and I ended up having a two and a half hour conversation um, on zoom yesterday and it was just a fun time we talked about a bunch of things we talked about how I found my podcast we talked about his study of the Egyptian polemics and Genesis. We talked about Genesis in general. We talked about reading the Bible as a story. We talked about the Nephilim and Genesis 6, and we talked about Michael Heiser in general. We talked about the host of heaven, the sons of God. Um, we talked about faith and works, just running the gamut on just things that we found interesting. So as always, uh, I hope that you guys find this discussion interesting, encouraging, challenging, and I will post timestamps in the description so that you can jump to uh, another topic if the one we're talking about gets long-winded for you. Um, but as always, I appreciate you listening, and I will see you in the next one. And my, uh... oh wow, it's going to even like audibly let me know. That's I know, cool. yeah, so we're recording now. Okay. Cool. But yeah, if I end up using this, I'll let you know. Like, yeah yeah please do That'd and be... then if please like don't don't put that on the internet do what like, i can edit it out if there's anything that said that you're like please do not put oh. that on the internet yeah. i can edit it out okay. that, that's fair that's fair i'll try to keep uh keep that in the back of my mind that way i don't say anything that i wouldn't want going up um, regardless but um yeah my buddies and i've actually talked about because i've got a lot of friends who um are the, one of my best friends, um, he has a degree in theology and apologetics from Liberty University. Oh, wow. And another of my friends is very deeply involved in theological studies, not academically. Um, and so we've talked about doing a podcast together. So we'll see if that ever ends up happening one day. But What would be your angle, do you think? So we, I was actually just before calling you, I was running some errands and I was on the phone with one of the, those two guys. And, um, we were talking about that. Um, we more or less were thinking, we've heard a lot of people talk, not just in podcast form, but in the church in general about the process of deconstruction and faith. Yeah. 
And um, very few people, um, he brought this up actually, very few people um, seem intentional about reconstruction. Yeah. At least in a practical sense. Um, they okay. might talk about it, but um, he pointed this out. There isn't much like, what do I do to reconstruct? You know? Yeah. How do I build a framework? And so um, I guess we were talking about that being the focus. Um, I don't know that that ever will happen, but I mean, with me being in school right now and um, just everything I've got going on, it'll probably be a little bit before we get the ball rolling on that. Yeah. That's, that was pretty much kind of the genesis of my own podcast. I mean, you've been yeah. listening, so you, yeah. you kind of get that, but um, let me selfishly, I want to ask you, because uh, we don't know each other besides yeah. a YouTube comment. Yeah. Uh, how did you find my podcast? Um, if I'm being entirely honest, I'm not sure. Okay. I'm honestly not sure. So I listen to a, a wide variety of other podcasts that I'm pretty sure you have at least heard of. Um, so I believe you've mentioned Bema before. Oh, yeah. You, um, you mentioned him in the email and I was like, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to find some some good quality Bama people. So um, we actually so sorry. Funny story about Bama uh, and Bama groups. Uh, my family has one in Kansas City that uh, we were doing before. I they're still doing it now, but yeah, uh, I'm not. I zoom in and stuff, but I'm not as much a part of it as I was when I still lived there. Yeah, uh, but we got registered on the websites. So we're on their map of Bama groups, and there was a girl who came. Uh, moved from uh, California and she's a she's a I think she's an engineer works for Honeywell so um, but anyway she emailed Ben uh, my buddy who put us on the website and was like hey I'm moving to Kansas City can I join your Bama group and we were like heck yeah so yeah. so yeah like the website and the maps thank you Brent for doing it uh, have been have helped our group grow so um, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say this because Brett might hear it one day um, if you put this up on the internet, but I, tomorrow <laughs> night, actually, um, I am starting a, uh, my wife and I are having a Bayma group, I'll put in air quotes, um, at our house. We're going to start. Um, All right, Brett, put them on the map. <laughs> so um, nice. we... I'm a, I'm a bit concerned as to how it may go because of some of the perspectives that may be in the room that might not like um, some of the things that Marty says, especially in the first two episodes. Um, I don't know. Okay. So be praying for that. <laughs> I will. Uh, that, whatever the second episode is, I think it's the second one where they talk about uh, the chiasm in Genesis 1. Yeah, yeah. That one's going to go on my uh, people who changed my mind about Genesis series for sure. Yeah. It's, I, I, it's so funny. I remember listening to it and I'm, you know, I'm weird. I'll listen to it and work out because that's like an hour I get to myself. Bro. So, so okay. Sorry. Pause real quick. Every day, um, every weekday, my wife and I try to wake up early in the morning and go to the gym. And that's my Bama time. So I do the exact same thing. 
I, I get it. Yeah. Uh, I've been, I've been hooked on Heiser's podcast right now, but, but yeah. So I was listening through Bama ever before my family started this group and listened to the episode about Genesis. And I was like teetering on the edge of a non-literal interpretation and just the way he said it and talked about the literary structure of it. I I'm, I'm like walking to go do pull-ups and in my head, I'm just like, yeah, uh, I can't take it literally anymore. It's just, I can't do it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that um, was my like epiphany. I was in the middle of working out about to do pull-ups and I was like, yeah, my mind. Walk up to that pull-up bar and you're like, <laughs> <sighs> yeah, no, I know. I get it. I, um, I think Bama was my, I won't say, so uh, in undergrad, I got a religious studies minor. Okay. Uh, so I, um, I've been having literary conversations, but I wasn't quite sure where I sat on the fence. Um, and through that process, Bama got thrown in the mix. Um, and I was definitely on that teetering edge too. I think I was leaning a bit more literary, not literal. Um, yeah. Already. But I mean, after that, there really wasn't any going back for me. Um, the yeah. the question now is how far do you push that up? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's something that I'm still kind of wrestling through. Um, my, so you, you're at AGTS, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, at Wake. Wouldn't consider myself AG, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Um, I actually grew <laughs> just, up in it. just to be clear, like no, no shade to them. My family's a lot of my family is, and I, I've liked the school so far, but I, at some level, I feel like the evangelical outsider, his comments will get made by professors. They'll be like, Oh yeah, us and AG. And then like some comment about like, I don't know, Andy Stanley will get made. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but he's in my camp. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I grew up AG. Okay. Um, most, I mean, really, from the time I was old enough to make my own theological or starting to form my own theological perspectives. And um, I, I was actually a youth pastor at my church for five years. Um, How old are you, by the way? Uh, 24. Oh, shoot. How old are you? All right, 24. Okay. Wow. Get the nail on the head. I turned 25 in like, I don't know, two, three weeks, something like that. Okay. Well, um, happy early. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, but yeah, so I grew up AG um, just about a year ago, left that position to move here and um, do the whole theological education thing collegiately. So and you're aware, you're aware. Oh, uh, like where um, are you going to school? I know yeah, you're in Wake, Wake Forest Divinity Program. I got it. Okay, okay. So, um, very liberal institution. I was about uh, to ask. Yeah. So the um, one thing that I like is they brand themselves and they really live up to this as an ecumenical school. So you, I mean, if I wanted to argue that King Saul rode a pink unicorn in a battle that farted rainbows, I could make that argument. But I'd have to be able to back it up. Yeah. And I don't think that I could back that up, just for the record. Um, but um, 
so you can hold any position you want to at the school, but they definitely, as an institution, lean um, in a liberal theological bend um, and social bend and a lot of other things. Um, I, forgot, I was going somewhere with that and I can't remember where. Did you ask a question or did I answer? We talked about age, you, you being a youth pastor. Oh, we were, we were oh. initially talking about Genesis. Okay. How yeah. far do you push the literary interpretation? Yes, that's what it was. So um, the more that I start looking at Genesis and literary structure, so here's something interesting that I've sort of realized recently, and you can tell me what you think about this, because this is something I'm still kind of wrestling through. Before but... you get to that, uh, I'm going to turn my fan off. So give me just one second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, I've been thinking about the way in which literary style doesn't necessitate, like an author interjecting literary style doesn't necessitate non-history. Mm-hmm. Um, so Robert Alter in his book that I haven't finished yet, um, The Art of Biblical Narrative, he references um, how... Um, you know, we can view things as historized fiction. So if you were to write a fiction book that takes place during the Revolutionary War, um, or you can write fictionized history. And so he argues that a lot of like Samuel and Kings is fictionized history. It's something that the author was aware of taking place historically, but the author cannot be aware of a private conversation that both King David and David at the time and King Saul had alone. Um, and so he could, he's only aware of what they went and did after that conversation and what they were doing prior to that conversation. Um, and so that's sort of influenced the way that I've sort of been thinking about, you know, how far to push the primordial history as literate and even beyond um, into the patriarchal narrative. Um, th- does that make sense? Yeah. Are you familiar with Pete Ends at all? No. Okay, he's someone I, if you're going to do, I'm going to give you the advice my friend Alex gave me, who he was on the episodes about uh, the fundamentalist perspective. Yeah, the gospel. yeah. So when I was interning at the church uh, there, me and him, you know, got along really well. Yeah. And when I initially told him about my podcast, he goes, well, if you're doing a podcast about reconstruction, you need to listen to Pete Enns. He's like, I agree with about 60% of what he says, but he's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think he went to Prince. No, Duke or Prince. Duke and then Princeton. I'm not sure. Like very high, high level. Yeah. I've got um, a friend at Princeton right now. Scholar. Yeah. Um, he's one of those that's moved from what seems to be a very conservative camp to a more liberal camp. Yeah makes him very interesting and very helpful in like pushing the envelope and evangelicalism um he actually got fired from a teaching job because he wrote a book called uh incarnation and inspiration i think the subtitle is something like the evangelical problem i'm just going to look it up now because i don't want to get it i think i have actually heard of this 
I didn't recognize the name, but I recognize the title of the book. I haven't read it though. Incarnation, incarnation and inspiration, evangelicals and the problem of the old Testament. I have heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get it. I have his book, how the Bible actually works, um, which I really want to read, but anyway, his podcast is called Bible, the Bible for normal people. Um, so if you want another one for your rotation, I would recommend that. Um, and it's, it's very much like interview topical style. Yeah. Uh, he does some series. So any series that is Pete ends ruins X mm -hmm. is usually pretty good. Like Pete ends ruins uh, Exodus is very, very interesting. Uh, okay. But that's actually, so what made me say that is yeah. that's a phrase I've heard him use quite a bit when talking about Exodus is he, he uses the term um, mythical history yeah. instead of fictional history yeah. or uh but yeah, I think the same yeah. same rules apply. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm familiar with with uh, concepts like that. No, yeah, I, I can buy it. It's yeah, that's very fascinating. I'll have to check him out. Uh, the, you know, I'm still really not sure where I stand on it because, on the one hand, archaeologically, you know, about Exodus now or creation. <laughs> Uh, I was going to go Exodus. Okay. Um, I don't know as much about it yeah. as far as like literary structure is concerned as yeah. I do with Genesis. I, I probably wouldn't say that I do. I, well, I say that I took a whole Africa in the Bible course and Exodus was pretty heavy there, but um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like most, you know, Old Testament courses, you spend forever in Genesis and then you breeze through everything else. Uh, but so I guess let's go back to Genesis since we had talked about talking about that. Okay. Uh, sorry, sorry. Before we go there, I do want to yeah. know, how did you find me? Oh, yeah. That's, I don't remember, that's but like, so, can you get, do you know the first episode you heard or if you saw a clip somewhere? So I just want to um, know if, if like what I'm doing to try and get it out there is actually yeah. working. So... Um, it's totally selfish, but go ahead. No, I, I wanted, well, so I said my minor was in religious studies. My major was in marketing. So okay. I, yeah, I yeah. Totally understand um, and sympathize. Let me pull up my podcast app and see maybe what I might have been doing that led me to you. So people that I've been listening to, um, some Timothy Mackey stuff. Oh, I love Tim. Love oh, same, Tim. same, same, same. Um, I haven't listened to him enough. I'm way, way behind on Bama, but I've been listening to them for a couple of years. Um, yeah, I basically got through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and then I listened to a few things in the New Testament. I skipped way ahead Yeah, and haven't listened to much since. So yeah. I listen through it as our group does it every week. But Yeah, anyway. I would highly recommend session three. Fantastic stuff. Um, so yeah, I... Those two, and then have you heard of the Deconstructionist podcast? Yes, they interviewed Tim, which was a very good interview. Um, yes, it was a very good interview. Um, I yeah, highly, I've, I've listened to that. a few of their things, not very yeah. much. I've, I've listened to them for a little while. Um, so I delivery drive pizza um, okay. occasionally. And so when I'm doing that, I'll turn them on because I like having something in the background that's 
you know, messing with my mind a little bit. Uh, but anyway, so I listened, I was, I've been listening to those guys. Um, and I think I was actually looking for a video by them on YouTube when I found you. Interesting. Was yeah. it my, uh, thinking about the Bible with Tim Mackey and N.T. Wright? And... It might have been. Um, that's that's the one that's gotten the most traction. Well, when you ironically, name three big people in yeah, Christianity, you're going to get clicks. Naturally. Um, but I also have like 15 comments, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, um, that is cool. Um, so what I think happened was I was looking for them because of their interview with Tim Mackey, because a friend had sent it to me a long uh, time. Yes, that would make sense. And I listened to it and I was like, I can't remember what they're called. So I typed in deconstruction and Tim Mackey and you popped up. And so what happened was I found you there. And honestly, I haven't watched much of you on YouTube. That's because fine. Because most I'm, of it gets repurposed on the podcast anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what I've been doing is when I'm delivery driving, I'll, I've turned you on and had you either in my earbuds while I'm in the store, if nothing's going on or while I'm on the road. And um, that's been kind of cool because, you know, I don't know. Anyway, so I found you and then I was actually delivered. I, I was delivery driving, listening to the, the video that I commented on, um, but that in the podcast app. And I was like, holy crap, this guy is saying exactly like everything that I've been saying for a very long time. And I need to see if I can connect. Awesome. So no, that it worked. It, it's yeah. Okay. Cause that's yeah. the thing that I've been realizing and this is something I realized and something I've heard Andrew Schultz say a number of times uh, is that it's so I, and I'm sure you can realize us being having a background in marketing. Yeah. But what's difficult is as far as podcasts themselves are concerned, like within a podcast app, mm -hmm. there is one, it's hard to have people commit to an hour to something they don't know anything about. Yeah. Two, there's no way to do, of course, you can make s smaller episodes, yeah. but there's no way to taste clips of something on the podcast app. Yeah. There's just no way to do it right now. I'm yeah. sure it'll come at some point, but the hack for me, and this happens for a lot of podcasts, is there are yeah. some people who just watch things on YouTube as a podcast, yeah. and then there's some people who just see the audio as a podcast. Yeah, because podcasts and YouTube have had this weird crossover. Thank you, mm -hmm. Joe Rogan. But like, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and then there's people like me who like brilliant idiots, but only watch clips. I never watch a full episode, never listen to a full episode, but I just watch clips. Yeah. Right. So I've been trying to use that. What I know of how I even interact with podcasts mm -hmm. as yeah, but if I don't know you, but if you post clips that are 15 minutes that I find interesting yeah, and I see enough of those, I'll probably listen to your podcast. Yeah. But I'm not going to go unless somebody recommends it to me and says, yeah. Hey man, you need to listen to whatever, whatever for X reason. Yeah. I'm not automatically going to find you out of nowhere. It's just not going to happen. So that's why I cut up the clips and put them on YouTube from some of the episodes I filmed. And then, you know, I make those 15, 20 minute chunks, get about four of those in an episode. And then I post the whole episode by itself, just in case someone seems to find it. 
that's why yeah. I want to do more YouTube specific videos like that one that for me is the biggest one I've had. Um, yeah. And is copyright strike, but I don't care because yeah, I stole a bunch of clips. So like, it's fine. I don't need to make money from it. As long as it gets me a little bit of exposure and helps people out, then it's yeah. Well, and that's part of the game too, right? With marketing is how much, how much is marketing just going to grab your, grab attention to, um, so one, one thing I studied in marketing, um, back in undergrad was, um, do you remember the Super Bowl commercial that I think Miller Lite did where they were trashing on, or maybe it was Bud Light was trashing on Miller Lite beer and, um, saying like, oh, it's made with corn syrup or whatever. Yeah. And it was like super funny. Well, Miller Lite sued them for defamation, but they know they couldn't win. They know they couldn't win the, the suit. No matter what, they would not win. They, they pursued the suit simply to get exposure to show people that like the intricacies of how all of that worked. Um, so it sounds something sort of like that. Like it, it might not be, it might be an upfront cost, but long-term, hopefully it works. Yeah, and that's why I'm trying to make stuff more specific for YouTube is because I don't just, because I have re some resources now and the ability to, and I've learned enough. Like, yeah. I've learned enough chimpanzee video editing techniques to know how to make an okay YouTube video, right? Yeah. Uh, but like I'm basically just stealing Paul Vanderclay's format and putting it with stuff I find interesting. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like how can I make YouTube specific content that can then drive to where if they're interested in that, they could also be interested in the podcast, but not just, oh, all he does is put his podcast on YouTube, right? Yeah. So yeah. if I can double, if I can do both of those at the same time, then I feel like that, that'll be really helpful. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. The, um, because I'm trying to think of all the ways that I have been turned on to a specific podcast. And usually it's word of mouth or um, I saw that it was actively related to something that I was interested in. And so I gave it a try. Um, or the person that I've, I'm listening to, I've been following for a while in another format. Yeah. And so yeah. That's happened quite a bit, actually. So yeah, that makes sense. I wish you luck. Thank you. Do you I'll have a favorite? Help. Do you have a favorite episode of mine? I have my own. I just was curious what, like, if you if you found one particularly interesting. I don't know. Let me let me look. Um, because honestly, um, I listen to most, if not all, of your stuff. Let me look at previously played. I've listened to all of them that are in the podcast app. Awesome. Um, I think I actually found, um, I think it was the one where you were talking about with, with that friend where it was like fundamentalism and then yeah, the fundamentalism one was really interesting. I thought. Um, yeah, that one. That one was one of my you... favorites. My favorite's probably my interview with my Mexican Jewish friend. 
just because I think he's fascinating. And I never which one was that? It was called Being Jewish and Believing in Jesus. Oh, I yes. my Jewish that one was Jewish. awesome. I do remember that one. Um, yeah, that was fantastic. I listened to that in the gym too. But yeah, no, the fundamentalist and the gospel was uh, like at some level. So this is, I miss, I haven't talked to Alex actually in a minute. I was going to get him to do Unseen Realm with me because uh, he got into Heiser around the same time I did. Yeah. But he just hasn't picked up his phone, like literally. So, but I have another buddy who lives in Springfield and I got him on the Heiser train and he okay. is almost done with Unseen Realm now. So we're going to go through it together, I think. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so that, the, that episode was birthed because Alex and I kept talking about Mm-hmm. I, I did a so if you've listened to any of the Bema about the New Testament, if they talk about they have an episode of Mark's Gospel, they talk about the crucifixion, yeah. which he steals a straight from um, Ray Vanderlaan, but that's fine. Yeah. That's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Them. yeah. Uh, but I did a whole thing for the church about that whole parallel between yeah. the crucifixion and the coronation, the coronation of a Roman Caesar. Yeah. So as we were doing that, we talked about how this, you know, frames the gospel in a different way. During that time, I read How God Became King by N.T. Wright, because I was just like, if you're going to do that, then you need to read this book. Yeah. So I did. And uh, and then I read uh, Surprised by Hope uh, during that same time. But uh, yeah, we kept like, we had a big whiteboard in the office that they let me use it was the yeah. old pastor's office <laughs> um but we kept just this is how we think out loud we'd meet in my office and we just draw on the whiteboard just a bunch yeah. of stuff and we started making diagrams about how different sides framed the gospel and i was like this would be a really interesting conversation for the podcast so that's how that was birthed yeah that's crazy it was all written like i don't remember if it shows up on the video but i think the whiteboard to the right of me and i kept like glancing at it to make sure we hit you know yeah yeah that's that's super cool the um that's how most of them have come about actually is just conversations i've had yeah had parts of outside of it and then i'll be like okay this is i'm getting you on the podcast we're talking about yeah no that um that makes a lot of sense i recently my um I have a lot of conversations like that too. Recently, my brother um, graduated from high school. And so I drove down to where um, I'm from to uh, be there for his graduation. He wasn't walking, but um, they were having a little surprise party for him. So I surprised him for that. And he and a bunch of his friends, they're theologically inquisitive. And so they started asking me and one of my other buddies who I was talking about earlier, um, a bunch of theological questions. And so we sat on the back porch for probably three hours, just going back and forth. And after that conversation, I was like, I need to have somewhere to like push out all of this stuff that I just talked about because it was so, I don't know, it was just a really good conversation um, on so many different topics. And um, I don't know, I, I, to- I totally get what you mean. 
be yeah, uh, part of part of my motivation is is honestly just because if i don't i feel selfish i know what you mean <laughs> right? I, I know exactly what you mean part um, of it is i'm obsessed with a certain thing and i want to share it yeah yeah so sure yeah but the other part is i'm sitting here like man i have been exposed or i'm aware of certain things that other people may not be familiar with at all and yeah. i will feel so selfish if i don't put it somewhere um now i want to one thing i want to ask you about before yeah. we get off this call is uh some of the stuff I said in that seminary video that I've been thinking about more is the internet and education broadly, um, but specifically within the church. I think that's mm -hmm. some issue we can talk about, but I do want to hear about Genesis. We, let's go back to that. Yeah. Um, Gen you were said something about Genesis. Are you okay? So let me clarify if I understood you right. We were talking yeah. about theories around how to interpret Genesis. Yeah. Um, where we see JEDP and how some of that is good, but some of it fails. Yeah. Um, but you were talking about there's an Egyptian polemic happening in yeah, yeah, yeah. in Genesis. Or are you speaking about the creation stories? Yes. Or stuff that happens later? Okay. Yeah. So, so I know nothing about that. So fill me in. Yeah. So specifically Genesis 1. Um, the So hold on. Let me, I'm going to grab a book. I'll be right Go back. Go ahead. So I've got this book here, um, Ancient Egypt in the Old Testament by John D. Currid. Um, it is... I feel like I've seen it mentioned on Inspiring Philosophy. <laughs> yeah. So um, the first few chapters in this, he goes into, and he actually makes, I think I have a quote that I used in my paper. Let me see if I can pull it up. Just pull it. Yeah, pull up your paper. So I actually I had it up because I knew that you we're going to ask me this question. And so I was reading through it before um, we got on my ending quote from him is um, from pages 63 and 64 of that book. And he says, if I can find it uh, while much is made about Mesopotamian influence or parallels between uh, with the biblical text, the Egyptian parallels regarding the means of creation are more substantial. So that's sort of his thesis. Um, and I kind of agree with him, at least in broad strokes. Uh, now, I will admit, I'm actually more educated on Egyptian parallels than I am Mesopotamian, Babylonian parallels. Okay. Um, at least I've spent more time with them. Um, I wrote a paper on those, whereas I haven't written really anything on the Babylonian or Mesopotamian parallels. Yeah, um, what I was talking to you about was more so uh, Babylonian parallels to Genesis 6, which... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of a different that, story, but go ahead. Yeah, that I am entirely unfamiliar with, but I would love to hear about that. Um, so he he recognizes the Babylonian parallels, but he talks about how the cosmology of ancient Egypt is so similar to the cosmology of um, the Israelites of the Israelites in the way that it works. So. 
in their creation stories, they actually have multiple creation stories and they sort of have a postmodern idea of like holding all of these creation stories as true at the same time, which is kind of weird because they're mutually exclusive. All of them feature a singular creator God, uh, multiple gods, but a singular creator God who then creates the other gods and then yada, yada, yada. Um, you should read <clears throat> Unseen Realm. Do what? You need to read Unseen Realm. Yeah, it sounds like I do. Um, <laughs> That is amazing. Yeah, that's how he. More about that later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What? What you just said is how he introduces the book and the Israelite conception of the divine council. Yeah. 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 You're right on track. Go ahead. Okay. So, um, so it starts with that, and the um, the God creates in one of two ways. Uh, one of them's kind of crude. Um, he either creates by spitting. So like as he's speaking, the spit falls from his mouth and it creates. Yeah. I remember God. reading about this in um, in a Walton book, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, and I can or cannot say the other one, depending. No, on go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. He masturbates. Okay. And, and the other, um, and that's the other way in which he creates the other gods. Um, and so the singular creator God, therefore, you know, for lack of a better term, gives birth to everything. The cosmology is also similarly set up where there's a, a uncontrolled, dark, chaotic water and a sense of namelessness. Yeah. Um, so one interesting theme in the creation um, account. Name gives it purpose. Yes. Name gives like, it purpose. Name gives it substance and value. Yes. Um, and so there's this similar theme in the Egyptian creation accounts, um, that Currid argues we don't see in other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. I've only really thoroughly explored the Egyptian ones, um, and have a base familiarity with the Babylonian ones at this point. Um, so, and then the way the cosmology set up, you know, waters above waters below, and then the land rising out of the waters. Um, there's actually also a linguist possible linguistic play um, happening here. So the um, in the Hebrew, the the Hebrew Bible begins Bereshit bara Elohim et Haaretz et Hashemaim or et Hashemaim et Haaretz. I can't tell you you're wrong or not because I haven't taken Hebrew yet. So. Okay. Yeah. So uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens yeah. and the earth. There's actually an interesting thing about that that it's actually literally in the Hebrew in a beginning, not in the beginning because the definite article is missing, yep. uh, which is uh, you drop that at a Bible study and watch everyone lose their minds. Um, <clears throat> have, so sorry, side note on that. Yeah. This is also going to my Genesis series. There's a great um, lecture by Tim Mackey where he talks about the unnecessary tension between science and faith. And he begins his lecture with a, discussion of language and okay um translation yeah um but he may he basically quotes the hebrew and says okay well how do we think about earth and heavens and what about this I've phrase heard, in the beginning yep, yep. really I've, in uh, the beginning you could I've, you could also phrase it like star wars a long time ago yeah like yeah so um i have heard that and it was a fantastic talk i've actually been meaning to listen to it again so i've got to go back and and find but um, so linguistically, the term berashit, um, it's the I can't remember the technical term for it. So the the bet, the the b, 
is um, the word in essentially. It just gets smacked onto the front of other words. So it becomes attached. And um, Rashid is the term for um, like first or beginning or, you know, start, whatever. So um, he argues that the term Berashit reflects, um, is usually used to refer to um, the head, the top, or the chief. Like the, the, it's not like necessarily chronological. It's also like ranking or um, height. And he argues that it can sometimes be used to refer to the tops of mountains. And so linguistically, he's arguing that um, in the Egyptian cosmology, the first thing to appear is a pyramid with a point at the top. And so he, he connects those two concepts and says that there's this sort of, um, as the land's appearing in the beginning, um, I don't necessarily find that argument super convincing, but amid other connections, it, you know, it may or may not be a similarity. But even think, just in, in, in conceptions of what is sacred space, right? We see this in Ezekiel mm-hmm. 28, whereas Eden is also described as the mountain of God. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Not just, a, like, they mash these images together, garden, yeah. mountain. Well, it's where the gods live, right? Because yeah. they don't live in the desert. The desert is death. They live where it's lush, where there's rivers flowing, where there's going to be food. And they live where no humans are up on the mountain. So like Ezekiel 28, it's like we can smash those together and, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. The, um, and that's one thing that I think a lot of modern American Christians struggle with is this idea of being able to take images and the ways that the prophets specifically push things together or subvert expectation um, and play literarily with ideas. It's subtle. And it's beautiful because it's subtle, but it's difficult. Uh, and so I think a lot of people don't recognize that. And when it's pointed out to them because it's unfamiliar, they kind of recoil from it. Yeah. And I think so part of that, and this is my big revelation as, as I started getting into Bayma more, and this was actually before I decided to go to seminary. Um, one of the things that kept hitting me was this actually came from a uh, part of this revelation came from a, a Peterson lecture where he talked about the necessity of story. And yes, yes, yes. Um, but I kept thinking about how I can, I felt so. emaciated in my in my knowledge because part of my conviction became look i can tell you my views on why i hold x y or z as far as calvinism versus arminianism or why i would or wouldn't hold a certain view on creation right um what i i don't i could not now defend my view of revelation because i don't even know what it is um yeah but my That's point good. was that I can I can proof text you my POVs on certain theological issues. Yeah. But if you ask me to tell you the story of the Bible, I would maybe get 40%. And that still 
to this day kind of eats me up because I'm like, man, have we become so obsessed in in enlightenment world in the scientific world to give like proofs for why we think what we think yeah and not know the stories and and deeper than that is it because we have become unable this is the other revelation i had after that was is this because i've become unable to look at the scripture as a story yeah Yeah. right whereas i can tell you all the great things that Vince Gilligan does in Breaking Bad to layer themes of the story for Walter White or for Jesse yeah. Pinkman. And it was by the way, because I haven't started that. It's on my list. Okay. Um, then I'm not going to, I can't, I, I can use a different example. Okay. But um, just one of the, one of the things is the way he uses color for certain characters, which is not yeah. a new to him. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a very good, you know, visual storytelling technique, but he uses it very, very well. Yeah. So he layers that with certain ways things are said for characters, certain way they get mirrored later. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, I can tell you all that and get engrossed in the story because I know it's a story because I know how I should analyze the story. Right. Yeah. Yep. But when it comes to scripture, when it comes to Genesis, when it comes to Exodus, mm-hmm. I'm not looking for motifs. I'm not looking for, or at least this was the old me. I'm not yeah. looking for parallels. I'm not looking for literary devices. I'm, I'm not looking for how days uh, one through three are like, in a sense, creating space or things. And then days four through six are filling those spaces with things. Yeah. Uh, I'm not looking at how the Egyptian or the Israelite escape through the waters is a recreation story i'm not looking at how noah and his landing of the ark finally is a retelling of creation right which makes total sense when then what happens is he gets remandated with the same you know planet that was given to adam in chapter two uh but if you can't look at the story then you ain't going to see those because you aren't looking for them you're wearing totally different glasses when you look at the text and that's what i'm that's the one thing that tim Mackey i think helps the most with so that's what he's very much interested in is what literarily what story-wise is going on here and yeah i was having this exact conversation with um a fellow intern at my internship right now um turned friend he and i um have very different views i think on some things, but we have very similar views on a lot of others. And um, we were talking about how, even if, so I brought up the fictionized history thing again, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you want to view it as history, one thing you have to understand is the author is framing that history in a certain way, right? With the word choice, the way in which the words are used, the order in which the words are used. And so you can totally believe in a literal seven day creation, a six or 7,000 year old earth, whatever, and still hold to, and I don't think that's necessary and I don't particularly hold to that myself, but, um, and still hold this literary view of the work that you hold in your hand when you hold a Bible. Um, And you can turn to the first page and see those things, but your emphasis can't be on, is it history, right? 
Yeah. Because the minute your emphasis is on, is it history, you're missing the point. Like you were saying, it's not, let me prove that this is history. It's what is this story teaching me, history or not? Um, and even if it is history, it's being framed in a certain way to teach a certain lesson. And so yeah. I... That's, yeah, even the... Uh, those are example I like to use a lot now when we talk about inerrancy. So this could get us into some interesting things here. <laughs> well, part, just to sort of like frame it, the Jews are willing to do way more stuff with the text than we are. Yeah. Like they play with it in so many ways, even the way the New Testament writers quote it, which is what some of us speak on, is yeah. Paul's like, yeah, the rock that was in the desert was Jesus. And you're like, that's not in the Old Testament. The yeah. Jewish assumption was that it was just the same rock. Yeah. Right. But that's not, you can't prove that. Yeah. Um, example i love because i wrote a paper on matthew 12 or exegetical paper for my research and writing class last semester on matthew 12 what so are you killing that pardes have you not reached that point point in bama yet no no okay never mind don't don't worry about okay it's a long long conversation okay uh I, i did listen to his his episode on matthew 12 so okay. if you're referring to that then no 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 it was, maybe, it was something but okay okay uh anyway so i wrote an exegetical paper on matthew 12 it was actually the second half of matthew 12 because matthew 12 is really long yeah. um, but it was focusing on the whole discussion of jesus's uh, confrontation with the pharisees about is it by the power of the spirit or by the power of beelzebul that he casts the yeah. demons right yeah that's a good episode something that is fascinating and i'm not going to be able to give you the hebrew words specifically yeah but one thing that i realized when i was researching it was there was a bunch of debate around what precedes that whole incident which Mm -hmm. is matthew's quotation of isaiah yeah and the end of the quotation from isaiah says uh um, something to the effect of uh now I'm just going to, sorry, I'm just going to pull it up. Yeah, do it. I think I have my paper. Uh, yes, should be here. I didn't recognize any of my, ah, uh, here we are. Here's my So you have ESV? I do. I have, uh, if we want to talk about weird translations, I have, though, I have some weird ones. Um, okay. Not what? that I disagree, but I'd be interested to 
your why ESV versus others? Uh, I think it holds to a lot of the, well, my short answer would be, I think it holds to a lot of the new findings we've had uh, for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. Uh, translations of, of specific things in the Old Testament that I could talk about in a minute. Yeah. Um, I mean, just for pure reading's sake, it's not my favorite, but yeah. Anyway, um, so here's the Isaiah quotation, Matthew has in 12. Um, I'll just read it. It's a few verses long. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved, whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will pour out justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory in his name. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. And there's other translations that say, in his name, the nations will hope, which I think is very interesting for other reasons. Um, anyway, the, the quote in question here is this phrase, he brings justice to victory. Now, um, the original word that's used in Septuagint is uh, one that would mean to bring forth, right? Which is to bring justice, to bring forth justice to victory. Now, when that's Isaiah 42? Yeah. Okay. That's this interesting. Would, what's up? That's interesting because this is also part of a section, I believe, quoted on the Mount of Transfiguration. But anyway... In so yeah, interesting, not, interesting. I'm just trying to link things in my head. Sorry. You're good. But what Matthew does is he changes that word from the Septuagint translation. Huh. He make he changes it into a word that means to cast out, to exercise. Well, then you ask why? Well, because the whole debate they're about to have for the rest of this chapter is by what power does Jesus exercise demons? Hmm. And Matthew's point is because the spirit is upon him. It's by the power of the spirit that he exercises demons, not by the power of Beelzebul. Yeah. But I love bringing this up when people bring up inerrancy, and I'm like, well, the Jews are willing to do a bunch of stuff with the text that we would never yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. And he does it to prove his theological point of, look, he's, he's the Messiah. He is the son of David, right? And there's a bunch of interesting stuff about David and Solomon and exorcism, if you want to look that up. Psalm 91 is a good place to start, by the way. Um, because we think it's just lost on us that like why why would Jesus be exercising demons and that would be a sign of his messiahship? Yeah. Well, it's because we never learn about Psalm ninety one or other things, lost psalms that were found at Qumran that seem to be exorcism psalms, um, Psalms of Solomon, how Josephus talks about. I have some of that in my paper too, by the way. Songs, things that Josephus says about Solomon. Yeah. But anyway, uh, all that is to say that there's just as far as literal readings or using things uh in a literary style to prove a point it's mm -hmm. exactly what matthew's doing here yeah i mean yeah. the gospels aren't void of it either right we talk no. about mark and his his parallel with the roman coronation was jesus really offered wine mixed with myrrh right before he got crucified i don't think so i don't think yeah. mark cares yeah mark doesn't care if it was real or not mark's proving a point about jesus kingship yeah it's way more than did it actually happen yeah well and you know all of the ways that that trickles down i ended up using that talk about jesus royal coronation of the cross um 
you know, after this last election. Um, oh, yeah. You see all of the, the posts go up about, you know, no matter who is president, Jesus is king. Um, and then you see the clap back, right? It does matter who's president because yada, 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 these points. And, you know, they bullet point it from there. And um, I posted a 10 minute video to Instagram. I almost never post Instagram, period. But I sat down because I was, you can edit this out if you want. I was pissed. No, I don't like, I was just as like, as long as you're not saying like the F word, yeah. I don't care. Okay. Um, so yeah. I just I try was, to keep it mostly yeah. like clean just because yeah. I know I'm probably going to hit a lot of evangelical and fundamentalist people. Yeah. And yeah, if yeah, I'm no, out I'm here good. talking like bad Christian, I'm going to totally turn them off. Yeah. So yeah. no, no, yeah. I, I 100% understand. Um, but yeah, so I was mad because the whole debate was so stupid. And so I brought that into it and I said, here's the thing you have to understand about Jesus was that he was political, but he was not political in the way most people think of politics. He was subversive and he changed the game. And if we as Christians are going to try to get political, we need to do the same. And that means not, I don't know. I don't want to give the whole rant again, but you know, so you're you right. You want, dude. Do what? You can if you want. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's been, a, it's been a second that I, since I looked at it, but um, yeah, I did. Essentially, I, go ahead, go ahead, finish. What no, you I, I was just going to say, um, essentially, the, the talk that I was giving was, you know, this is the way that the gospel chose to frame Christ. And if you call yourself a Christian, then you have to do something with that. I don't, I mean, if you want to reject it, reject it, but at least be honest about your rejection of it. Um, and then we can have a conversation about that because if you want to call yourself a Christian, but you want to reject that, then that's something we have to address. Um, and so I don't know. That, yeah. The thing that, that I kept happen. saying, especially after what January 6th happened. Yeah. As I kept saying, I think a lot of people, the whole scene, I believe it's in Matthew, the scene where, uh, where, Jesus, the, where Pilate is placing Jesus in front of the crowd, the Jewish crowd, by the way, yeah. and says, what do you want me to do with your king? And they shout, we have no king but Caesar. Mm-hmm think we can learn a lot from them yeah that's that that punches right to the gut yeah um and because they wanted to keep their position the yeah. jews were rightfully so they were scared that well hey man if if he's gonna like he's not taking over rome like we thought a and b yeah. If Rome gets too mad, then us Jews are going to lose our, our, like, not great, but, like, okay spot, our, our deals with, you know. Yeah. Well, it would shake the status quo. Yeah. In, in a way that was not favorable for a lot of people. And, and even the people who it wasn't favorable for, they grew used to – what am I – sorry, I keep getting phone calls on my phone and – They'll, they'll leave a message. 
Um, the shoot that totally threw me off. What was I saying? We were talking about um, the Jewish. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what would you say? Position under Roman authority. Yeah. So it it shakes the status quo, right? If if Jesus Jesus has come to shake the status quo, and if if the status quo changes, that means you're put in a new place. And most people find that uncomfortable. And so, um, I mean, he rejected many aspects of the religious authority that was partnering with Rome and all of that stuff. And it, it was not favorable for a lot of people. Um, and so for them to, to see that potential risk, um, I mean, that, they tried to mitigate it. Which, and then, you know, you get the opposite end of the spectrum. Christians nowadays um, like to swing the anti-Semitic route. Oh, you know, those blasted Jews and all their, you know, yada, yada. And that's just totally the wrong perspective, too. Um, the, I don't know. So I wanted to hear a bit about... Um, the Babylonian, what you got with the Babylonian parallels to Genesis? Um, well, the biggest one, I don't know enough about the creation stories themselves yeah. to point uh, polemics there. Yeah. Um, did you get a chance to listen to the lecture I sent you? I listened to part of it. I actually, I wanted to get more of your perspective on him. So maybe we could do that. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was just about to pull up a clip from Heiser cause he would explain it. He would yeah. get things that I would totally forget. Um, yeah. Well, go ahead. Yeah. What was your, so, what are you going to ask then? Well, I was just going to ask, what is his thing? Because I listened to him for a little while <laughs> um, while I was doing something else. And it, yeah. I think it was part of a Q and a, and so he was responding to some questions and so I didn't quite get um, there's him. And I, I was curious. He seemed to have an interesting perspective. Okay, yeah. Tell me what you, you seem to glean and seem to understand at this point. And maybe I can, I can fill in some gaps. So it was um, the one about uh, his book, Reversing Hermon, right? Was the one I sent you. Uh, and I sent you some of his... Uh, uh, discussion like blog posts right you did send me the blog posts and i'm gonna be honest i didn't have time to read through all of them that's fine it was just about his 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 variation of the jdp theory okay um which yeah I'd, I'd love to get your spin on that too but i guess i probably should have should read his post before doing that um let me see well i was i'll say this on that note uh yeah. if there's big egyptian polemics happening in genesis it it substantiates more of my view that Moses definitely, if not influenced, was part of the authorship there. Yeah. It makes total sense, right? He's yeah. born in Egypt, raised as an Egyptian, more or less, for 40 years. Yeah. Right? Like, it's yeah. going to come out. Like, he's going to yeah. these stories. The, so, um, whether the, he helped start the oral tradition or whatever, or yeah. helped... I don't know. This does some weird stuff to me, though, because I'm like, I am also firmly believing that those stories, at least the first 11 stories, 
11 chapters in Genesis, the first five show stories, probably some of the oldest stories we have in humanity. So that or maybe Job. Um, but yeah, um, at least orally, I'm not written, obviously, but yeah, the so oldest stories, I kind of have a different perspective there. Okay, go um, ahead. <laughs> this could go on for quite some time. This gets, gets into like textual criticism and all of those big words. Um, I pulled up the Michael Hauser video or Heiser. Um, let me see. The video is called, it put me in two hours into a. Oh, sorry. It must have skipped to you where I had left off because that, okay. that is the Q&A. He lectures on a book he wrote called Diversity Herman. Okay. The and For an hour before that. Okay. So it's not super long. So um, I should probably go back and. Yeah, that's he he draws. So what he does in that book is he draws the Genesis six story, the sons of mm -hmm. God, the daughters of man, how yeah. that story in Genesis six is a truncated version of Enoch. Okay. And how that those themes that are used in Genesis six and in Enoch get dealt with as a consequence of sin in yeah. the New Testament. Yeah. That's what that book's about. I have it on my bookshelf outside of my living room, but okay. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. But yeah, it's about an hour long lecture. That, But that gives a lot of, because what Genesis 6 is polemicking is a bunch of Babylonian stories about Apkalu and their, how they thought they derived from these, you know, giants who were half human, half spiritual hybrids that gave them all their wisdom, all their things about divination and sorcery and, huh. um, and all that stuff. And it, even if you look at the list of kings that mm -hmm. happens for in Babylon, there's seven kings that are linked to seven Apkalu. And the Apkalu are basically the same characters as the Nephilim in Genesis yeah. 6. Okay. So the polemic is, you think that what you made your civilization so great is because of these people. Well, actually, they're what makes you so evil. Yeah. And That's, they're not good. They're the bad guys. They're the rebels. Yeah. Which this then also explains, and this is part of his argument for the translation of the word Nephilim in chapter six, because mm -hmm. um, you have to square it with what happens in Numbers 13, which I have a professor that has a horrible interpretation of Genesis six, by the way, doesn't even deal with Numbers 13. But why Numbers 13 uh, brings up the giant, phrases them as giants, right? Yeah. Um, and then this also very much like very much explains why the time that Israel's is given in Canaan to wipe them all out, the couple of times they're told that is because well, is why? Because the clans they're wiping out are giants. Yeah. Well then where did they come from? Well, they're part of the rebellious sons of God. Yeah. who gave up their place in the heavens and wanted to come down to earth and mate with females yeah. and created offspring. They're wanting to do what God did in the beginning, but without God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So basically the command is wipe them out because why? Well, because they're not mine. They're not part of my creation. Yeah. They're a rebellious creation. So take them away because mm -hmm. also the incarnation isn't going to save them. 
that's interesting but yeah it makes sense of why this is yeah. like then this is then my like apologetic argument for why does god why does god command joshua. like a claim to be wiped out in joshua it's like yeah. there are reasons that don't make sense to our mind but in their whole story made complete sense yeah yeah so i don't want to commit chronological snobbery either to quote c.s lewis um and say well just because we do it differently now means it's like not justified at all it doesn't make any sense no it makes total sense yeah so yeah that's that's what he talks about in that lecture yeah Is that's those, i've never heard that before those no i had neither until i read it yeah two, a month ago yeah um, yeah he's a whole chapter in this book called holy war that talks about the Herm. killing of the giant clans yeah that's anyway i'll have yeah. to um I'll have to look into that. I won't necessarily say, I mean, obviously this is my introduction to it, so I don't really know how I feel about it. Um, that's like, yeah, that's that like, so broad like, strokes, yeah, broad strokes anyway, but give me, I can give you some more, you know, that's a specific argument he'll make. Yeah. yeah. If you want broad strokes on him, like what, what's your initial impression, I guess. Well, so, um, coming from wake, I have a very different, um, they, I'll say, they have a very different theological approach or textual approach. Okay. Um, so, um, Genesis, according to most scholars that I've been exposed to um, within this side of the aisle, I guess, of um, biblical studies, um, they would argue that Genesis was written, finalized in the post-exilic period and written. Down. I, I believe that. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't have any issue with that. Yeah. And my so more, my, my bigger point on the stories of the first parts of Genesis were, I think those orally have gone back yeah. a long, long, long time before they were ever written down. Yeah. So then so, you, could, you could argue, well, Moses updates them and makes them more of a Egyptian. Yeah. Like, I don't think it messes with that, my view of that. Yeah. So, yeah, which I totally so, buy now. So my my main issue with documentary hypothesis, the J. Uh, JE, OK, so we're going on this route now. This sort of, in my mind, interplays with what I'm about. OK, to say. But go, go ahead. Go ahead. Then. So the um, documentary hypothesis I've got an interesting video I'll have to send you on that. Um, not that I agree with everything that's said in the video, but it's it's an interesting way to look at things. Um, but anyway, so with documentary hypothesis, um, shoot, where was I going with that? We're talking about Genesis. Yeah, um, so polemic with Babylon. Yeah, um, Egypt, Moses. Egypt, Moses. So old stories. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, my, my biggest problem with documentary hypothesis is that um, in the situation that most scholars take it, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are finalized and canonized, you know, post-exilic period, okay. which I don't have a problem with. But then they like to... I think get a little lazy 
by saying, well, you know, the oral tradition obviously goes back further than that, but we, you know, it goes through a lot of changes and yada, yada, yada. And we really can't track much of that. Now, while that is true, I think one thing that they sort of downplay is the fact that the prophets who obviously came before, I mean, even the prophets who come before the exilic period are referencing Torah and not in small pieces either, right? So we have to have somewhat solidified, somewhat authoritative oral tradition, at least, yeah. pre-exilic. For the pre-exilic prophets, exilic for the exilic prophets and post-exilic for the post-exilic prophets, right? And again, all of those will give you variations and gradations on, you know, like how also, much... In, in this discussion, it becomes... Uh, it becomes a definition of terms, right? What do you mean by canonized? What do you mean by yeah, yeah formalized? Yeah. Uh, is it is it in some scrolls and some some places and some scribes? Sure, but does yes. it mean that there's you know scrolls of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, yeah. all in one place at one point? Does that mean canonized? Like it's well, just so, it's just playing with terms at that point. Yeah, so canonized, I think, actually takes place post Jesus. Um, officially Jewish canon. Now they had a rough working canon, like the finalization of the Jewish canon. Um, because, you know, in several of the gospels, he references um, the law and the prophets, but doesn't reference the writings, right? The writings were compiled last. Um, and, and so the, you know, there's, there's canonization, right? And finalization. And then there's the redaction process that probably lasted a thousand years. Um, and so when are the stories written down? For instance, um, the Song of Miriam after the Exodus and several passages in the book of Judges, um, I think the Song of Deborah too, are actually cited as being probably the oldest written pieces of literature in the entire canon. Yep. Um, because that what probably happened is that they were taken from other works and put into the canon and we don't have the works that they were taken from anymore. So um, the moral of the story is it's all really, really messy and all really, really muddy. Yeah. Um, going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, my, my issue with some of that is that um, at least initially, my objection would be if it's so heavily based on, well, no, see, now I'm thinking my way through it. I, you know, I don't know. I'm going to have to play around with it longer. Here's another part of this too, that I think maybe is wrestling in your head right now. The question of how much of it is purely polemic and how much of it is their belief about what actually happened, right? Yeah. Something like that. So we know that I'll use a, a more modern Christian example. Yeah. I can use two actually. Um, so C.S. Lewis writes The Great Divorce. They're both actually have to do with hell. So C.S. Lewis writes The Great Divorce in response to a book called The Great Marriage. 
Mm-hmm. Well, okay. How much of his, you could argue, how much of the great divorce is meant to be just a shot at the great marriage yeah. and not its own literary work? Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with this is a less, what I would say, not as good example as far as literary is concerned, but um, Francis Chan writes the book Racing Hell in response to Rob Bell's book Love Wins, right? Yeah. How much of that is Chan trying to just be like poking at Rob? Yeah. And like, oh, Rob's wrong. It's not, uh, from what I understand, I read like a few chapters of it and I've read The Great Divorce a few times. Yeah. I haven't read The Great Marriage, The Great Divorce is polemicking, but it doesn't sound to me like Lewis is like, and in this section, he makes this point. So I'm saying X, yeah. right? Yeah. He said X, I'm saying Y. Um, I think what a smart polemic does, it says, nope, they got it wrong in these areas. So I'm going to twist yeah. my oh yes, or my story to make Absolutely. it fit this way. I yeah. think that's what's going on in a lot of Genesis, especially in Genesis 6, is yeah. to say, look, we think this is the actual story and we just think the story you're telling is wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. well, I mean, it's just like Genesis 1 or Genesis 2 and 3, where yep. um, it gets framed in a certain way that draws at least the ancient Near Eastern eye towards certain things that the modern eye wouldn't catch. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is because you've grown up and learned in a framework that taught you one way and the biblical narrative is completely subverting it. And so it's not, it doesn't have to even assert the point being asserted by the other side because it's so naturally there. This is, as you're saying this, this is a weird example, but it's an example I keep bringing up to people. Not in this scenario, but just this movie I love. This is what Tarantino does in Django Unchained. It's exactly what he does, right? What's yeah. who's he, what he does is he says, okay, I'm gonna flip the like what you could. I'm not saying this is the best way to frame these movies, but yeah. what you could argue as a white colonialism narrative of yeah. cowboys in the West. Yeah. And make it the black slave is the cowboy. He's the hero. Yeah. Right? There's that great line, which I can't quote, where Django's going through the town on his horse and all the slaves are looking at him. He goes, what? You ain't, right? Yeah. yeah. Why? That Mick Jenkins says, that's a reference no one's going to understand. But uh, but yeah, like what is, and he gives him the big hero shot when he kills the slave owners, right? What is Tarantino doing? He's taking language that we know in film or the hero, especially in the Western genre, mm-hmm. and saying, I'm going to make the hero the person you wouldn't think is the hero. Yeah. What he does doesn't make the movie less better because it's some sort of polemic against Western, the Western yeah. genre or repurposing of it. Oh, absolutely. If you know those, you see it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that the KKK is the biggest running joke in the whole film, I think is hilarious. Yeah. Um, anybody who thought Tarantino was racist for that movie never watched the movie. Um, but yeah, if you know those things, then you catch the other things he's doing, but that doesn't take away from the movie as a movie by itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, um, so I guess what I'm still probably working myself through with, um, Heiser's work. Give um, me, give me your general conception and maybe I can either tell you you're right or fix it for you yeah so 
I don't know. There's something about the way it interacts with the book of Joshua that intrigues me. But because I've still been formulating my perspective on the book of Joshua for basically the last three or four years, because I don't have that nailed down, I think this is just another part of the equation I have to throw in there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, but it's a very, it's a very interesting, fascinating part of the equation that I like. Um, I mean, the giants reappear because the, the Israelites don't kill them all, right? Yeah. They go to, they're the Philistines, right? They show up later as Goliath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So to give you like broad strokes on him as a scholar, I've been following him for. He's another one of those people where if you ask me, how'd you find out about him? I, I'd say, I don't know. Yeah. I do know that I had a conversation with uh, a friend of mine, an older friend of mine at a summer camp for our youth group. This was three years ago. Yeah. And we were talking about a bunch of different stuff in there. And he goes, yeah, you should, you should look at this guy. He has a Bible podcast called the Naked Bible Podcast. And I was like, interesting. And he goes, yeah, he believes in like other gods and stuff. That's like the only thing I remember from the conversation. <laughs> and I was like, that is weird. Um, yeah. But he didn't really explain it. I don't know if he could explain it to me at the time or not. But yeah. anyway, that's all I remember from the conversation. And then it was two years later mm -hmm. that I finally ran into it. It was probably a YouTube video. Yeah. Probably. He posts a lot of good clips from him doing lectures and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, and then I saw him in, inter I looked up him in interviews yeah. to get his views and then bought, I have, a number, I have two books of his right here, actually. So uh, this one's Unseen Realm. It takes you through, this is my, here's my plug <laughs> before I go through it on the podcast. Uh, his, him going Genesis Revelation uh, with an eye for the ancient Israelite view of the supernatural world. That sounds very interesting. It is. It is what I find so difficult, which is why I was so happy with your, how you talked about the, um, the divine council like an hour ago, yeah. right? Yeah. When you were talking about creation stories, I was like, okay, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Because he starts there. His big thing was he read, he had a friend and he talked about this in I think the first chapter. He had a friend when he was a doctoral student say to him, he had his Hebrew Bible at church and he goes, Mike, you need to read Psalm 82 in Hebrew. And he goes, okay. And Psalm 82, I'm just going to pull it up. Yeah. I actually wrote a, um, I could send this to you if you want. Um, this kind of goes with the giant stuff we were talking about a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, this was in my Old Testament theology class. Ah, uh, yes. So I wrote, it was a discussion board post. It ended up being 1,200 words. So there we are. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I had to make my argument. The question was about the formation of Israel. And this wow. one of the specific words my professor used tipped me off to what I was going to say. He said, why would God raise up a nation through Abraham? And I said, mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about cosmic geography, which we can talk about in a minute if you want to. Okay. But let's read Psalm 82. I have yeah. it quoted in this paper. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? So I need to get a glass of water. So I'm just going to carry my laptop with me. You keep talking. Go ahead. 
Ah, uh, yes, here it is. So here's Psalm 82. It's just six verses long. I think you'll find this language interesting. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Yeah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. <clears throat> that is, um, are you familiar with the term henotheism? Yeah. yeah. Explain it for me for a second, just because so I make sure I'm thinking of the same thing. Yeah, so henotheism is essentially what, um, and so I learned this term in my Old Testament one class, and then I was talking to one of my buddies, and he's, he was doing just a read through of the Old Testament, and I brought the concept up, and he was like, oh my gosh, I've been thinking the same thing. And so he independently came to the same conclusion that ancient Israelites, including probably Abraham, were henotheists. Um, henotheism is essentially the belief that other gods exist, but you're going to worship one of them. Okay. What, what I would believe and what Heiser would posit is a little bit of a henotheism doesn't quite capture it. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we're going through this now. <laughs> so I'm going to reference this paper just because it was a final formulation of my thoughts. Yeah. Uh, after having read through the book and I've listened to probably... How many hours have I probably listened to him lecture? Maybe 10, okay. 15. I've listened to way more Peterson lecture than him, though. Like, I was Jordan on, Peterson? Yeah, I was on the Peterson train. Oh, I've been on it for about three years. So Yeah, I'm, I'm a big Peterson guy, too. Not as big as – I haven't been following him as long, regrettably. But. Uh, dude, his biblical lectures are fascinating. They're also kind of what helped change my mind about – like the nature of mythology yeah um anyway i'm trying to reformat this on my screen it's being dumb anyway all right here we go here we go all right so i'm going to frame this for you how i frame it in the paper because i think it's interesting i think it's something that never gets talked about i think we have a problem and how we look at again if we're talking narrative mm -hmm. of genesis i have about 40 minutes left for this conversation, by the way. Okay. I don't know if you have to be anywhere at some point uh, before your group tonight. Good. Oh. So we're running on my clock. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think we have a problem in how we think about the narrative in Genesis. Yeah. I have a question. Okay. Or I have a posit and then a question if you agree with what I'm about to posit. Yeah. So the first stories in Genesis seem to be dealing with stories about humanity as a whole right yeah. you have adam oh yeah human and eve humankind and yeah. eve right Was you have life or um yeah like that like adam human eve life yeah right this is definitely not a literal story they're trying to do something else um <laughs> then you have cain and abel which just talking about the descendants of the first man and woman of human life. What happens when 
the curses and death and toil and jealousy take over. Yeah. Right. Abel that, is um, related to the term Hevel, which is um, the Ecclesiastes um, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And it's like vaporous, um, which is his part in the story, right? He's there one minute and gone the next. Yep. And then you get cities that get built from Cain's descendants that are cities of destruction. And then you have that really weird saying by Lamech, right? Uh, or what is it for God is insane Cain uh, seven. Wait, what? Lamech, when he talks about Cain, he says, God has protected Cain sevenfold. If he, after he talks about murdering someone, he says, let me just pull it up. Because Jesus quotes it in a way that we do not catch. Uh, that would be Genesis five so jesus is remezzing this yes he is all right i'll read it and then you'll, you might catch it okay uh this is genealogy genealogy that's enoch No, that's six. Where is it? I should know my. I should know Genesis better than this. Uh, ah, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. I've I've made a promise to myself from a friend's challenge that I'm going to commit Genesis one through eleven to memory. Oh wow. Yeah. I just think they're some of the most important stories in the Bible, probably I besides agree. the Gospels. Um, okay. I'm just going to read from 19 to 24. Um, okay. Well, okay. Cain has a son. And one of them is Lamech. Lamech married two women. First, uh, uh, oh my gosh, what's the word? Uh, I almost said polytheism. <laughs> is this, uh, what, what uh, chapter is this? Genesis 4, this is at the end of the chapter, verses nine, verse 19. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and, one, and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jabal. He was the father of all who played strings, instruments, and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Jabal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Jabal Cain's sister was... Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zola, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. You could ask if that's two different people or the same person. Then he says this, if Cain is avenged seven times in God's promise to Cain, right? Then Lamech, 77 times. <laughs> Where does Jesus quote this? How many times should we forgive our brothers? Okay, then what's Jesus' point? It's not a you, number, by the way. Yeah. It's, well, it's a reversal of this, right? Okay, so yeah, so what would be the point? 
the point would be you like everything is forgiven. Yeah. And with the same veracity with which Lamech wanted yeah. Yeah, revenge, yeah. you forgive. Yeah. That's crazy, bro. That's crazy. I like that. I like that a lot. That does. This goes back to what Marty talks about when, when it's like, whenever Jesus talks, it's from the text. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, so for my, um, I translated the entire book of Jonah myself for, um, yeah, you told me about that. My, my final project in Hebrew. And there are so many interesting things at play between, um, Jesus calming the storm, Jonah, and Genesis 1. Like, oh, yeah. It is amazing. Um, and so this sort of reminds me of that because, uh, yeah, you can do so much with this. Okay, but anyway, back to the thesis I was trying to outline. So the yeah. first stories in Genesis deal with what could be seen as all of humanity. You have Adam and Eve, human life. Yeah. Cain and Abel, what happens when the curses that are given to humanity manifest themselves in jealousy and rage? And then you yeah. see that even more fold in what happens with Lamech, a descendant of Cain, who goes and builds cities, uh, which, funny, uh, the name Lamech is a tweak of the Hebrew word for king, which means he's yeah. just a bad king. Uh, I stole that from Tim. That is not my revelation. Um, Tim, Yes. Uh, Melek. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. So then, in Genesis six, you have another episode of sons of God, daughters of man. All of the uh, what is it? I have the Bible pulled up here, so we can just look at it. Uh, verse five, which we'll talk about. Oh, uh, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race. This is how the NIV translates it, because it's a. Yes, that is a correct translation of that word, had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thought of his heart was evil all the time. This is so six? Yeah, this is chapter six, verse five. Right, so this has to do with all of humanity becoming wicked. Then you, give, you get the flood, whether you're going to debate if it's regional or global. I don't think it matters for what the story is trying to say. Yeah. Um, because then you get the, what we've talked about, just now is the reinstantiation of the prom of the covenant given to Adam, given to Noah, that all the descendants will come from him. Yeah. Then he fails. Why? In the same, well, in a similar way of Adam, right? Because he becomes a vine dresser. He becomes a gardener. And then we could debate what happens with him and his son, uh, which I do not want to get into right now. <laughs> but um, yeah. Kaiser also has a very different interpretation than Marty on that story, by the way. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. So all I know is they're different because I debated a friend about it. Um, hmm. And then after that, you have Babel. Yeah. Which also seems to be, well, it just the text uh, says. Slowly expanding. Uh, what? Is that slowly expanding sense of evil? Yes. So it makes many sense of evil, but also now the whole world had one language in common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said, come, let us make bricks, bake them thoroughly. So, but we obviously have a, a story dealing with all of humanity, at least as far as the narrative is concerned yeah. at the end of chapter 11. Yeah. We get to chapter 12, first verse. And the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. 
I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Some translations say all the nations on the earth, which is also very interesting for reasons we'll get into in just a minute. So what I posit is the first 11 chapters of Genesis have something to say about all of humanity. And yep. I had a little, I had a little joke in my paper. I said in parentheticals, it's in the name Adam. Yeah. Um, then, then goes on to tell about all the things we've just talked about in those stories. At the end of that story, okay, so here's, here's what I posit. So when you go from 11, a story about all of humanity building a tower, God dividing them up, and then you jump to chapter 12, you no longer have a story about all of humanity. You have a story about one man, which God's going to make a nation from. So here's the end. Um, oh, here's my question. But from the first stories, God was interested in partnering with all of humanity. So why now only one nation? And I believe the answer lies what happens in Babel. And we know the story of Babel. Humanity builds a tower to get to God or to get God to come to them, depending on how you want to think about the tower itself. Um, so God goes down and says, okay, I'm going to confuse you all. And you're going to spread about because that's what I want. But you aren't doing it because you're all of one tongue. Let me, so I think there's something that happens about God's relationship to all of humanity versus God's relationship with one man and one nation in chapter 12. I'm going to read a couple of passages from Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 32 verses seven and nine. This is what Heiser calls the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. And I'll, I'll buttress it with some more verses from Deuteronomy. But here's Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elder, and he will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, there is some debate about how you translate that phrase, sons of God. Some translations, the NIV, for one, translates it sons of Israel. But I find a logical problem with that translation, if not a textual problem. Why would there be a logical problem with that translation, do you think? Uh, well, if I mean, we're talking about if this verse is truly referring to Babel, which I think yeah. it is, yeah, when God Israel... divided the nations. Why would it? Why would it be weird to translate it? He divided them up according to the sons of Israel. Because Israel doesn't exist yet. Exactly. Yeah, I mean that doesn't make any sense. What verse is that? I want to look at the original trans or the Hebrew real quick. That is Deuteronomy thirty-two. I did seven through nine. Seven through nine. Um. Yeah. Now I have a I can link you a whole paper about defending the sons of God translation in that um, because that comes from some some Septuagint translations and then some later things that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is that translation as sons of God. But if you don't believe that, let's read Deuteronomy four nineteen through twenty. Are you ready? Or are you looking it up still? Uh, no, you can go. Okay. 
and this is keep in mind this is in um moses's warnings to israel he says and beware lest you raise your eyes to the heavens and when you see the sun the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the lord your god has allotted to all the people under the whole heaven but the lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 4. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told to you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel. And then we could read Psalm 82, which is what I read to you earlier. Yeah. God takes his place in divine counsel in the midst of the God. He passes judgments. Now with what we have in our head from those passages in Deuteronomy, I think what's happening here makes a lot more sense. Because what did he say? You can't argue that this, uh, this, there's some really bad arguments for this passage because the word Elohim is used twice. The word Elohim is used for God. Mm-hmm. God takes his place in the divine council. In the midst of Elohim, Elohim yeah. he takes his place. Well, you can't be in the midst of one person, for one. And I've heard arguments that this is the Trinity. Well, if it's the Trinity, we're in trouble. Because the Trinity is being told they're doing some evil things. And I don't think God's right. going to do some evil things. Yeah. Right? But what did he say? He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You have neither knowledge nor understanding. All the foundations there should be shaken. You are, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. The Trinity's not going to die. And God's not going to command two of them to die. Well, one of them, but he's going to resurrect them. Arise, O God, judge the earth. And this last phrase is very interesting now. For you shall inherit all the nations. What I think is happening at Babel is God divides up. This also works with the um, 70 list and the table of nations that we get and the idea that God's pantheon or God's entourage, let's say, God's mm-hmm. heavenly council yeah. is 70. This is mirrored in the Sanhedrin having 70 members, by the way. Um, but, uh, oh, okay. Just more textual evidence. Uh, I don't know if I have the quotes here. Um, okay. In Job, I have Bible. what? So I looked up the, uh, the original Hebrew. Go ahead. For Deuteronomy 32. Which translate which is Masoretic text? Because I know the Masoretic text uh, translates it Israel. This is uh, actually have you point that out. Let me use this because I looked this up the other day too when I was writing for it for my discussion board. So this is Masoretic. Um, okay. They translate it Israel, correct? Yes. Okay. If if this is Masoretic, because I was using my phone, but I know that this one's Masoretic. 
Fastics. Sorry, the book is backwards because it's all in Hebrew. So, uh, 32. This is what, 32A? Let me make sure. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's Israel. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. You also well, get that because there are seven in Genesis at the end, it says there's Jacob comes with his 70 sons. So you could actually make that argument. Yeah. I, I don't think it works with the rest of Deuteronomy, though. Yeah. From what I've read to you. And okay, so here we go. And I can send you a paper that argues for the sons of God translation if you want to read it. Um, yeah. Be interested. Okay. So this is in Job 1. Uh, you'll be familiar with this. I'm just doing this to lay some groundwork, and then I'm going to read Job 38. Um, this is Job 1, verse 6. We're all familiar with this passage, but no one talks about it. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them, or the Satan, which I prefer. The Lord said to the Satan, from where you become, and we know, going to and fro, and then he makes a bet with God. I bet Job will curse you. Da, da, da. All right. But we have a heavenly council meeting going on when the Satan yeah. arrives. Job 38, um, sorry, verse 4. Where is Job's or God's rebuttal to Job? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Yeah. So apparently they were also there when creation happened. Yeah. But I think the language about them is very interesting. They're always considered sons of God or God's heavenly hosts. Yeah. So I would posit they are his creation. Yeah. The um, Which makes it different than uh, what um, the word escapes me now. Um, the polytheistic structure you were talking about earlier. Uh, henotheism. Henotheism. Yeah. It, it does make it different. Well, kind of different. Um, because henotheists could also, um, that doesn't necessarily, as long as they're considered divine, um, and you single one of them out, you could still worship it singularly while believing in the existence of others. So for instance, you could be a henotheist Greek or a henotheist Egyptian. Um, so like we were talking about earlier, right? Um, the Egyptian creation narratives most of the time have the Egyptian god creating the other gods through spit mm -hmm. uh, or other means. Yeah. And, um, and so you could still be a henotheist by focusing on one of those lesser, I mean, you could call them lesser gods, even though they didn't rank them. Um, just because the one god created the others didn't mean that there was a rank order of authority. Now, that could differentiate this belief system from what you described, right? Because there's obviously a superiority in um, God versus the divine council. There's a reason uh, he's called the most high. Yeah. So there's, there's a bit of wiggle room there, but yes, it definitely seems to reflect a, um, a more complex 
system. I, um, what's super interesting is this bothers a lot of people. I think when you bring this up, mm-hmm. um, what I was, so let me, before you get into that, which this might lead into it. Yeah. Um, it's from Exodus 15. Uh, no where is it ah yes it's exodus fifteen eleven. this is in the song of moses okay. verse 11 who is like you O lord among the gods who is like you majestic in holiness awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders you stretch out your hand the earth swallowed them it's not deny again. It's not denying other gods. Yeah, saying who is like you among the gods, among specifically in this conversation, the gods of Egypt. Yeah, and what's super interesting, um, and my friend that I was talking about earlier, he pointed this out specifically um, in the Ten Commandments: "You shall have no other gods before me." It doesn't I say that up. Yeah. other gods. It says, even if there are, I'm still your number one guy, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting um and so you you bring that up to people and they kind of freak out a little bit um i mean i'm of the i'm a you know pretty strict monotheist in the trinitarian sense but it doesn't as though the people writing this thousands of years ago necessarily held that to be a um a core tenant you know what i mean no, and so we talked about Trinity in my last week of, uh, or in the, I should say, in last week's session in my systematic theology class. Yeah. Uh, this might sound bad, but it's like one of those areas in theology where I'm just not very interested. Like I, it's one of those I'm totally willing to be like mystery and leave it, yeah. leave it alone. Yeah. Um, but something that he goes through in this book is he talks about how he talks about an old Jewish idea, which is called the two powers in heaven and how the word of the Lord shows up, literally shows up so many times in the old Testament as Yahweh embodied. Hmm. Think of the, I'm trying to think of a couple scenes. Um, are you, are you talking about um, like the angel of the Lord when that's part of it? Yes. Like the angel of the Lord or the word of the Lord. It's both, both of those. I haven't seen the word of the Lord used explicitly that I'm aware of. That's interesting mm-hmm. because that, that ties both to the concept of Sophia in the Proverbs um, and the Lagos in the new Testament. Here, let me see.
Okay. Um, but to finish, we can go on about that in a minute. To finish my argument I was making about Deuteronomy and Babel is that I think it's like, as I learned it, it's hard for me to unsee uh, the fact that God gave the other nations to be ruled by his lesser beings, lesser spiritual beings, and picked mm -hmm. Israel as his own. Yeah. I think it just made it makes so much sense with Israel being in conflict with the other nations and the other nations' gods. And then those verses I read you in Deuteronomy, where it's explicitly said, Hey, don't worship the host of heaven, don't worship the sun, moon, and stars. Those are given to the other nations. They're not yours. Yeah. That and is. then this makes so much sense why Paul's language in the New Testament is if the principalities and rulers of this world knew what they were doing with the crucified Jesus, they wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Why? Because he breaks their power. He's now, that's why that, even that uh, prophecy that we read from Isaiah, which is yeah. depending on how you translate the, that end of it, um, bring victory, bring um, healing to the Gentiles or, or justice to the, what is it? What was it? Matthew 12. Um, Cause I read different translations of this verse. Yeah. yeah. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. Some translations put, in his name, the nations will hope. Which is so, so curious that Matthew would say that about Jesus. Yeah. And then how Paul's, excuse me, Paul's language of, do you not, when the Corinthians are arguing amongst themselves, and he goes, why are you taking each other to court? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? The word there's actually Elohim. So there's a bigger inference there about you're going to huh. judge the gods that rule or rule the nations because you take their place as, because what are we called in the New Testament? Sons of God. Yeah. Brothers of Jesus. We get his inheritance. What is part of his inheritance? All the nations. This is why in Revelation, every tongue, tribe, and nation is going to bow down. Yeah, that's that's super interesting to see the way that theme seems to play throughout. Um, I tracked, um, I tracked, similar type of thread um, dealing with marriage and divine marriage mm -hmm. yep i mean that's definitely happening at sinai so yeah yeah well um i may have to send you some or have a conversation with you about this at another time because it's a long one um okay but the divine uh, marriage divine marriage yeah okay we can we can make an episode out of that <laughs> yeah i plan i'm hoping to actually make this my dissertation uh, okay we'll see how that goes but um but yeah it's it's i think another one of those themes that runs all the way through so it's interesting to see this thread run all the way through as well that's new and unexpected i'm gonna have to do some thinking about that yeah, dude. I, all else, I think you could handle it. Uh, obviously, you're a very smart guy, but appreciate that. Just, just read this book. That's yeah. Like, yeah. Look up his lectures. Those are all cool. If yeah. you want holistic Genesis to Revelation, some of this stuff, just read the book. It's, yeah. it's not the language isn't hard. There's a bunch of footnotes. So if you ever like, where did you get that idea? Yeah. You you can see where he got it. Uh, yeah. He's not making anything up. I appreciate that. Um, the, so one of my biggest issues 
I say issues. Oh, sorry. Before you say that, he does yeah. have a smaller version of the book that I've also read called Supernatural. Oh, no wow. footnotes or anything, just a distillation of this book. Gotcha. Um, it took me a week to read this. Gotcha. So if you want to fly by of his stuff, yeah. you can buy this one. But yeah. I always recommend this one. I, I got this book from my uncle, who's not a theologian, but we were talking about certain stuff. And that's cool. I was like, all right, I need you to read this book yeah yeah no that's that's super interesting i um i'll have to see if i can check that out i've got a bunch of other books on my list right now um but i'll maybe i can throw it in the you should just skip it to the front bro because it now i it's so hard like you already are on the way on some of these ideas so it was easier to explain them to you what i find so hard with just your average churchgoer and talking about some of this stuff is like how, how i've begun to describe it now is He's putting stuff in boxes that we don't have. So you have to build the box for somebody and then put the information. Yeah, in. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the, and that's one one of the reasons why I'm concerned about this Bama group that I'm starting up is um, I'm hoping it's going to help build those boxes, but I don't know if they're going to be willing to, to even build them. You know what I mean? So um, we'll see how it goes. But, but yeah, one, one of the things you're talking about him having a bunch of citations and stuff in there that um, that I struggle with with Marty is I want to use his stuff more in an academic setting. Yeah. But I can't because it's really difficult to source and cite where he's getting his material. Um, so I know he's recommended this. I, I got this book. Um, I have... Uh... Oh, it's on my other bookcase. I have both of those. The Walking, yeah, Walking the Rabbi Jesus and the Dust. My mom actually read those after she started listening to Bama. She bought them for me. <laughs> my mom did the exact same thing. <laughs> um, my mom listens to Bama and Tim Mackey. Like, she's an addict, basically. Um, and so she bought both of them. And I was just home a couple weeks ago. And I saw them. And I was like, oh, these are so cool. I've been wanting to buy them. And I actually asked, I was like, can you get me these as a birthday present? She was like, well, just take mine because I'm not going to read them again. I was like, all right. That's so, um, what I just told you about the Lamech and Jesus' Ramez of that yeah. phrase comes from one of those books. My mom read it to me. Really? Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. The, the um, I'm the biggest theological leech you might ever meet. Like none of the ideas I'm giving you are mine. Yeah. Oh, I've just no. stolen them from the best people. So I'll <laughs> say, I won't say none of the ideas are mine, yeah. but a lot of them aren't. Um, and I mean, I think that's how it should be, right? We should all be in conversation, getting ideas and develop developing them together. Um, I think too often we create silos. But um, but yeah, I this book I think has really helped me. You know, it has citations in it, and so I can at least start to form a formal. Um, like a formal argument based on some of the stuff that he talks about just using this, which I like. Um, so, right. yeah. Uh, yeah. As I, as I said in my video, I don't know if you remember this, but it's just been in my head. I've dedicated myself to outside of whatever I have to read for class. Mm-hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis, Judith Bonhoeffer, and Mike Weiser, I guess. 
because I'm yeah. about to go. I'm about to reread this and then go through it on the podcast, like section by section. So be cool. that'll be interesting. My yeah. what I'm going to do and what I hope to produce first as an announcement video, I guess, uh, is and I'm trying to kind of pivot some of my as I've more or less taken over the podcast from my friend, Dimitri, he's no longer co-hosting it. Yeah. Like exclusively with me, mm-hmm. uh, as I've been changing and all that, I've pivoted the content, which is, I think is fine. I think yeah. that the general thesis of it still holds true. Yeah. Uh, but to more, not how do I help seminary students, but, being a seminary student, you know, in that world, yeah. how would I like things? So like I've told my mission of God professor, mm-hmm. like, look, you do, there's books that deal with the mission of God starting from Genesis. None of them deal with Deuteronomy or Deuteronomy yeah. 32, Deuteronomy 17, or Deuteronomy 4. Yeah. None of them deal with Babel in that way. Yeah. Like, I think I've literally said you should put this book on your wrist list for books right in the class. Yeah. Um, this is something else Heiser talks about too, as why he's so. <laughs> People ask him, what got you interested in this? And he always goes, something, something to the effect of, I was providentially poked in the eye to see things, and now I can never unsee them. And I have to share them because, and he says this he wrote a book so he wrote this book he has kind of a trilogy happening so he wrote this book and then he wrote drill down books uh one on angels what the bible says about the heavenly host and the one on demons um and he says in my seminary education we spent one clock hour not credit hour not the class yeah not third of class one 60 minute hour yeah on spiritual worldview that tells you how much we value it not at all yeah when it's all over the bible yeah so yeah i think that's like i think part of his mission is to like put that back under Mm -hmm. christianity um so i um i think that's really interesting i'm right now i guess sort of fleshing out a lot of different theological ideas um some of them being like angelology demonology uh, and things like that and you know i i grew up ag so pentecostal so you i mean i come from that yeah i come from that background yeah um and so i'm i'm very familiar with and have been intricately involved in those sorts of things um And I see such an interesting distinction between the way we typically think of them and the way that they pop up in the Bible. Oh yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's like it's, what you just said about the, your buddy's comment about the 10 commandments. I've made that comment to people trying to introduce them to the idea of yeah, maybe God isn't out in the world of the Bible. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then I get answers like, well, they thought they were gods. And I'm like, that's not a very good answer. Yeah. Because God seems to think they're gods enough to put them first in his commandments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't believe that they exist, but 
there was a significant portion of people who did and who wrote these texts as if they, they were a possibility. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and, and God treated their reality, like their perception of reality seriously. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, well, I mean, I, when I say I don't believe they exist, I believe there is, there are other spiritual beings. I don't know that I would call them a pantheon or, you know, whatever you want to, yeah. Well, yeah. You want to place on that. Um, That's the other thing that Heiser says a lot is we're just, we're selectively supernatural, right? We believe in the virgin birth. We believe in the incarnation. Yeah. We believe yeah. in the Trinity, which is like, I don't know. Yeah. And yet when someone brings up, Hey, maybe like God has an entourage and he, does certain things with them first kings 22 by the way I we won't read it here but it's a great example of god using his heavenly counsel to get tasks on earth done that's the that's the scene where um the spirit comes before god and he says uh i think they're going to war with abimelech i don't think that's the right name yeah um and he says i will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets oh yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's a heavenly host that's one of god's so spirits. so um with you're talking about um, why can't I think of this guy's name right now? Uh, Heiser. No, um, the the prophet in the in the story. Oh, uh, oh, I don't know. Anyway, that guy. Um, I told my wife about that story, and she was like, "The Bible says what?" And when I read the story for the first time, I was like, the Bible says what, you know, it's just one of those things that you, we never talk about in the church. Um, that is actually. Micaiah. Micaiah, Micaiah ben Imla. Yeah. Micaiah ben Imla. Um, he like a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And so some prophecies are true and some are false. How do you know which one's which? And this, this makes the language of testing the spirits all the more interesting. Yeah. And it gets so complicated. Um, I was actually going to bring up, um, I can't remember where it is in Kings, but there's a place in Kings where the, um, an enemy nation sacrifices to it, its God and the sacrifice works. Yeah. Before a battle, they do a sacrifice to, in order to win the battle and they win. Um, and it's presented as though that God acted on behalf of that nation um, against Adonai. Like, so what? Um, again, I would consider myself a Trinitarian monotheist, but um, I, I do think there are other spiritual things at play as well. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very interesting concept um okay is there anything else on that realm that you want to discuss because no, i need to get off here in a little bit yeah um i'll run over my time it doesn't matter i was just anyway right, what i had did. planned after this isn't super time sensitive gotcha um here's something i, I want to end on two questions okay. um one of them being and we, if we can keep this to maybe a 15-minute discussion, maybe yeah. get your thoughts, respond, and then we can move on. Yeah. 
you said that what I said in my video about being in seminary really resonated with you. Yeah. Have you, okay, answer yes or no to this. Are you familiar with Gary V? No. Okay. Totally not theological at all. He's actually, a uh, short answer is he's an entrepreneur who lives in New York who just, just YouTube him. You'll find him interesting. Um, okay. If you aren't, don't care about language, then like you can watch yeah. him freely. He has a heck of a potty mouth. So like it yeah. doesn't bother me, but if it doesn't bother you, then like, it's fine. He actually has a, a channel now called uh, First Free Gary V where he edits himself. <laughs> um, but anyway. Uh, Gary V is in G-A-R-Y-V-E. Correct. Same word? No, two words. Gary um, space V-E. His name is Gary Vaynerchuk is his full name. Um, he's Russian uh, from Belarus. But uh, yeah, is that's this? his Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll give him a listen. I'll just say I'm basically, even though I don't watch him anymore, I'm basically trying to live out his thesis of, uh, he has a great video called Document Don't Create. And his, his idea is, look, if you're familiar, if you're worried about creating the perfect video or making the you know, best song. Yeah. And you're never going to put it out. Yeah. So why don't you, in pursuit of becoming a good rap artist or a guitar player, why don't you document becoming a good guitar player and put those things out? Mm -hmm. And then as you get better, people will grow with you. Yeah. Or if you want to be a great, you know, college basketball player, why don't you document you getting up at 5:30 and shooting in the gym and you go into practice and talking to your teammates or running right. drills or whatever and put that out rather than, I don't know, hoping one day you'll get a deal a sneaker deal. Yeah. Um, so I've like internalized that enough because I watched him for a number of years and yeah. now I feel like I'm living it out just in my specific realm. Um, like I'm documenting my theological shifts more or less yeah. for the yeah. internet. Um, I'm documenting my reconstruction basically. Yeah. Um, so I, that all is to say that's that, that's how it is for me. Now, yeah. what I see in things like the Bible project in things like Michael Heiser's podcast, the naked Bible, which by the way, every episode is basically a research paper. Um, so if you want high scholar, podcast you can listen to that yeah. uh, tim mackey's on the same level but they're more conversational which i yeah. like that style for their podcast yeah um Heiser is just kind of like you can tell he has notes but he's basically going through his thing about whatever subject yeah um, oh nt Wright starting his own online school stuff with his content the bio project again started classroom free free online seminary level courses um where called classroom that's a link on the bio project website okay yeah oh that's right that's right um so i just as i've been looking and i think that my revelation came and i, sh I shared this in the video i'll share it again yeah. 
uh, I was watching Paul Vanderclay, which if you're interested in Jordan Peterson and Christian interpretations of some of his stuff, Paul Vanderclay's your guy. That's what got yeah. me interested. Uh, but he's a pastor from California, puts out videos every day, every other day, just commenting on stuff within Christianity, stuff within Jordan Peterson's world, stuff within, you know, he did recently, a few weeks ago, this isn't really, really recent, uh, responded to a conversation between, uh, oh, uh, what's his name? The conservative dude from, um, from uh, Britain. Um, oh gosh. Uh, he wrote the book, The Madness of Crowds. Um, uh, I'm not sure. Jordan had him on a few months ago. Uh, Douglas Murray. He respond. He like reacted to the unbelievable podcast that was done as a conversation between N.T. Wright and Douglas Murray because they wrote and responded to each other recently. Gotcha. Anyway, just like stuff like that, which he's yeah. like reacting to, and making videos about three-hour videos, by the way. Yeah. Um, has like twenty thousand subscribers, and he's just doing his thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was sitting there eating breakfast one day, having been thinking about how do I bridge the gap between the churchgoer and yeah. the scholarly world or the like even just the thoughtful christian world not even just scholarly world yeah. right i think marty shows that very well um, yeah. as another example mm-hmm. but i'm sitting there watching a paul vernicle video about i don't know what eating breakfast yeah. and it just hits me like okay so this pastor from california who makes videos in his office has twenty thousand subscribers yeah because people are curious mm-hmm like what I, your average churchgoer, like wants to hear him talk about whatever, yeah. and not like simple stuff either. Like he's doing two-hour commentaries on a conversation between Jordan and John Pigeot. Like yeah. that's not an easy conversation to follow. No, and <laughs> and uh, I was just like, okay, so it's already happening. I don't have to wait. Yeah. To get my master's degree or start working on you know my dissertation to teach at some school to do this or to start a bible study or a bible you know sunday school club or whatever at some church yeah that's not where people's attention is anyway it's on the internet yeah so why don't i double down on it and document my process of becoming a seminary student and you know doing more high what you could call highbrow theology yeah. on my podcast. Cause that's who I am. So like, mm-hmm. that's fine. Um, yeah. So like, I don't know, that was my revelation of here's what's, here's what's happening. Like, I don't have to wait. Yeah. Like, and this is where people's attention is anyway. So I'm stupid. I am literally stupid. If I don't realize that and do something, do something because of it. Yeah. So do you see something similar about the internet being what's, because that's essentially what I see is the internet being what's bridging the gap yes. between scholarly world and your average Christian. Because my mom, my mom, who's 61 almost, is in the kitchen listening to Tim Mackey lectures about the creation of the Bible. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. buys books because of what Marty says yeah. on the Bama yeah. podcast. Like, and it's so crazy because my mother uh, has an associate's degree. That's like her highest level of education. 
Yeah. And, and she's flying through all of these materials. I mean, she gave me this um, and several others, some uh, David Foreman stuff. Um, oh, Beast that Crouches at the Door, dude. She, uh, if she has want, that. If yeah. you want a pure narrative literary look at Genesis, very interesting. Yeah, that sounds really good. Um, but yeah, so she, so yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And um, like I said, I, I was listening to that while I was at work. I was actually sweeping and I almost dropped my broom at one point when you said like the, the internet is because I've been thinking the exact same thing, which is why I was like, I need to get connected with this guy because you and I want to do basically the exact same thing. Um, and so I don't know. It's not a coincidence, I don't think. And, and the, um, it just, you're right. The, the internet allows for the dissemination of information in such a powerful, broad and wide way. Um, and you can go deep and you can go hard and you can go fast. And, um, I'm still not, you know, I'm planning on pursuing PhD if at all possible. Yeah. Um, I haven't made my decision on that, by the way. I, I told myself after my first year of seminary, I will make my decision because yeah. I'm trying to get it done in two years. That's why I'm in class during the summer. Mm -hmm. um, if I do three classes for the whole year, every, you know, all three semesters, I can do it in two years. But yeah. anyway. Yeah. Go on. So, so you want to do your PhD? I want to do PhD. At least I think I do. I'm pretty sure I do. Um, and... I want to teach. I want to be a part of that world, but I want to be the part of that world that extends the hand to the other side. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I'm the, the country boy who grew up in central Alabama and, um, and, you know, in a Pentecostal church out in the sticks somewhere. And so I 100% understand that perspective because I grew up in it and I lived it. Um, and so not that this makes me the perfect person to do that or whatever, but I've been on both sides of that perspective. And so I would like to do something with that experience that's meaningful and impactful. And so, yeah, no, I, I totally believe that the internet is the place to do it. Um, I, and I don't know, above all, I just want to make that, um, to make that impact, you know? Because, yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah. Like you're saying, it's already happening. Um, how can we continue to make it happen and let it happen in a good and constructive way? I think is the question. Yeah, and so uh, part of my, like why my tagline has become, you know, dedicated to those deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. And I've, I have older friends who are like, you know, deconstruction is a, like a, has Marxist roots. And I'm like, yeah, I don't love that, but yeah. like, give me a better word, right? Yeah. 
like it's it, not to say that it's not true and here's the other thing here's what i here's what my i had this a little conversation with a buddy of mine the guy who actually introduced me to heiser um about this a little bit and i said look part of what i'm doing and using that language is i'm trojan trojan horsing what i'm trying to do in those kind of spaces yeah yeah the um like i am probably the opposite of a marxist but there are there are terms and ways of thinking about things within that framework that are useful sometimes yeah and i think to totally throw it out as nothing at the very least you understand the perspective more yeah uh, and so i don't like outright rejecting thought uh no, yeah. no i think there's postmodern things that are very helpful yeah i just um, think taking I mean, to the extreme of a non-canonical interpretation or the fact that you then can't know truth is yeah is yeah asinine yeah well the um my uh fellow intern friend he and i yesterday you know we were talking having that philosophical conversation i was asking him about you know where can i go to you know explore more philosophy and stuff and he, um, he was talking about, you know, I said, you know, I'm not a relativist at all. And he said, yes, anyone who is a absolute relativist doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, because relativism, you can't prove or disprove anything with relativism. Um, and so I don't know, it's any extreme, I think is incredibly unhealthy, but, um, that's an, another conversation for another time too. I've got a whole spiel about that. You, uh, uh, you listened to, well, I don't know which episode it was where I talked about rule nine. Um, listening to someone as if they know someone, you know, something you don't. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was great. You were talking about Jordan Peterson and I was like, yes. Uh, speaking of philosophy, this is a book, both my friends were way more philosophically inclined than me. Uh, recommend it one of my friends actually just finished reading through it it's called the story of philosophy by will durant okay um it just goes through starting with aristotle through who's the last one he talks about people i don't even recognize uh, anyway um yeah, yeah. i mean if I, I, I've, they've asked me like, oh, if you should read more philosophy. And I'm like, dude, do you know how much stuff I have to read or want to read? Yeah. Like, yeah, I know. And, and Lewis is no philosophical slouch either. Um, yeah. But, but they've always said like, look, if you're going to start with one, like if you wanted a survey of, you know, ancient to modern philosophy, the story. I'm okay. also real curious to read when I read this, talk about Nietzsche because I yeah. think the church discounts him to their peril, by the way. I, I can agree. I think um, my pastor has famously said uh, any of the new four horsemen of atheism, don't take them seriously. Their arguments are, are not, not great. But he said, if you want to become an atheist, read some Nietzsche. Like he has way better arguments. Yeah. <laughs> he quoted him unironically in his sermon a few times. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. My yeah, my pastor is very, very philosophically inclined. He was literally reading um this was a couple weeks ago. Uh 
he was reading um I feel oh gosh uh oh he was reading works of love by Kierkegaard because he opened his sermon with a quote yeah yeah I that's um, the kind of church I go to yeah that's super cool I um I'm relatively familiar with some of Kierkegaard's stuff from a class but I haven't read much of him oh Uh, I also have uh speaking of philosophy I also have two Dostoevsky books on my bookshelf that I have yet to read Crime and Punishment and The Brothers Karamazov. Nice. I've got, um, so most of my books consist of stuff from school. And then I've got, you'll love this. Oh, how many does it have in there? Eight or seven? Uh, Let me see. One, two. I have, it's in the other room, but I have the version that has seven. I've got eight. Um, this is Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, Miracles, Great Divorce, Problem of Pain, Grief Observed, Abolition of Man and the Four Loves. Yeah, the one that I don't have doesn't have the four loves, which is also probably my, maybe besides The Great Divorce, my favorite Lewis book. I wouldn't argue it's his best, but I would say it's probably my favorite. Just ugh, the way that Lewis understood how to make arguments in our modern world is so good we can all learn from yeah we're actually discussing problem of pain in my small group tonight really that's awesome i um so i haven't read everything in here because i got this when i was an undergrad and then read through most of them and then stuff happened and i had no time uh but mere christianity i think is just a foundational book Oh yeah. So foundational screw tape letters will twist your mind around into a pretzel. Um, a grief observed, actually, go ahead. Yeah. A grief observed just makes you want to cry. Um, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I yeah. Love that opening line. It's. I remember cause I was going through somewhat of a grieving process, not for like death or anything like that, but just for some things that were going on in my life. And I remember reading it thinking Lewis feels more intense. Like his words are more intense than what I'm feeling, but I, I know exactly what he means. And then uh, the four loves, I haven't read miracles. I haven't read all of miracles. I haven't read the great divorce, the problem of pain or the abolition of man. I've read part of the abolition of man. Uh, and then the weight of glory, I've got it in a separate. Yeah, I have that one too. Anthology. That one was amazing. I love that. Uh, oh, this is my. Oh, this will be my, like my last comment on this uh, yeah. section. One yeah. of the ways. So I've thought about how do I help people break their boxes of yeah enlightenment and non spirituality to introduce them to people like Heiser. And something I thought of recently when I was talking to my, to Alex, is I said, I might recommend screw tape letters because it, because what he does is he makes the spiritual, whatever's happening there. So intertwined with the physical that they're hard to distinguish. I think rightfully so. And uh, deny in a Pauline kind of way, they're not distinguishable in, in screw tape. 
And I, I think he perfectly, I think you're right. He perfectly encapsulates that um, because we have this weird dualistic way of thinking, you know, in modernity that the biblical authors really didn't have. So yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, here's my, here's how I like to end this with people who are in, I had a conversation with another friend of mine, uh, Cody, that I didn't get, uh, I wish I would have, maybe next time I talk to him, I'll record it. I didn't record it, but we got on Zoom for a while. Yeah. I like to end with this. Uh, when I talk. Um, you, you broke up a second. Did you go back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes my, my connector here is kind of sensitive. So like if I hit the mic, it, gotcha. it cuts off. Uh, but no, the way I like to end it is what is some, we've talked about some of them already, although yeah. I don't think they're as dangerous as I, as people think they are, but what's a theological or Christian view. And we can cut this out if you want, yeah. uh, that you are wrestling with or hold that you find dangerous might not be the right word, uh, but different. More, I'll tell you mine. Okay, go for it. You want me to go first, or are you ready? You can go first. Okay. That's what I think. Mine would be, and I'm becoming more and more convinced of this, uh, is I am not sure I'm whole. I'll put it this way. I'm not wholly convinced that it is faith alone. Faith alone in the sense that that's what makes you Christian. I think there's an there is a insistence, especially in the New Testament, if you're willing to look for it, that there is a certain level of embodiment with faith that happens. That I would say, if that doesn't happen, I um, I wholeheartedly agree, and that may or may not be the most scandalous thing that I believe. Um, most Christians. Um, that's for someone else to decide, I guess. So I think instead of me adding a different scandalous idea, you mind if I explore this for just a second? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, when asked what the most important commandment is, Jesus responds. And, you know, I'm sure you're aware the, the rabbinic conversation that's mm -hmm. taking place when that question is posed. It's not a challenge. It is, but it isn't. It's not a challenge um, adversarially necessarily. It's a, um, it's a test of his yoke would, would be the, the term. Yeah. That they use. And, um, and so his response is, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohimu Adonai Echad. And then he, you know, proceeds with the rest of what the Jews call Shema. Um, we Christians, we say, oh, he says, you know, love your love God and love people uh, is how we sum that up. But one thing that I think we don't do a good job of realizing is the, the format and the formulaity of and the significance of his statement there. Um, so Shema 
being his first response is important here because we say, well, yeah, so Shema's here. Yeah, hear, listen, obey, something like that. But what's interesting is, right, it means all three of those things, hear, listen, and obey. So obey has a connotation, like you were saying, of action that hear and listen don't in English. But in Hebrew, it's all three. To hear is to do something. And that's, you know, she talks about it in this book. Um, To hear is to respond. So when Israelites pray, you know, God hear me or God has heard me, they are accounting to God an action or begging for God to act, not just have like, let the sound waves hit his ear, right? Um, There's an action that's implied within that. Um, So when we are, when we say, you know, we are to love God and we are to love people, right? We always say those things together but they're actually two separate things. And the way rabbinic yoke would work in the first century, um, you know, are you familiar with Hillel and Shammai, those two Jewish schools? A little bit. When so, I know of them, I know from Marty. So yeah, um, I'm, I have a little bit more familiarity than that, but not much. So you've got oh, this- and comments by Rob Bell. Yeah. Okay. So you've got the Hillel school and the Shammai school, and they disagree on a lot. And um, but most schools of Judaism flow from those two, and the um, they would rank order the laws, right? Uh-huh. So you can't follow all of Torah at the same time. Easy example: don't work on the Sabbath and protect life. Right. If your goat falls into a pit on the Sabbath, do you get the goat out or do you not get the goat out to protect Sabbath? Um, and that was actually a common question that was flowing around in that time. And um, I can't remember which one is which. I believe Shammai said protect the Sabbath and Hillel says protect life. Um, and so the way the yoke works, you know, they would say, well, the most important law is to love God, right? So um, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Elohim, Adonai, Echad, all of that. Um, and the, but the debate comes in with the second law. So the second law is love neighbor, right? So in, in Jesus ranking, now Shammai, I believe it was Shammai said, um, it was Sabbath law. Mm-hmm. Hillel says it's the love of neighbor, which comes from Leviticus 19, I believe. Um, and so Jesus actually isn't saying anything new with this in this debate. He's side, he's picking a side, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, you'd say that in a lot of Christians. I mean, that right there is kind of scandalous, right? Um, we think of Jesus as this revolutionary figure when he's actually partaking in a conversation that is, had already been ongoing. And doesn't uh, say anything new. Yeah. He just yeah. says, no, he has it right. Which is yeah. interesting because when he talks to the lawyer, right? Uh, as well, he asks, you know, what's the most, I think it's, uh, is it in this? Then, then he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, yes. right? He says, how do you interpret the law to the lawyer? And yeah. he gives him his answer and he says, you're right. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's so interesting. And again, the lawyer follows it up with um, the question, well, who is my neighbor? Again, we Christians interpret that as, oh, this guy's being nitpicky and he's trying to get out of, you know, those dadgum Jews or whatever. But what we don't see is that is actually the next question that happens rabbinically in yep. that conversation. Yep. And so what's taking place there is he's trying to, he's trying to get more specific and, and narrow it. And um, there was a, um, there was a, um, a school of thought, and I can't remember who this originates with, that, um, that was very limited in the scope of who the neighbor is there. Um, Jesus uses the parable of the Good Samaritan to counter this, and he uses a typical parable structure used by the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. So it, it usually goes, what is it, uh, priest, Levite, and the Pharisee. Pharisee, and the Pharisee's the, the one that guy. does it right. Yeah, and the Pharisee's the good guy. Jesus, um, now I'm sure you're familiar with the blood feud between Jews and Samaritans. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Jesus uses someone that the Jews see as being subhuman, like not even human, doesn't count. And he says, that is your neighbor, right? Go and do what that guy did. And I don't think it's just subhuman. It's also enemy. Yeah, but there, but the the interesting thing about the parallel, or the the parable, I should say, yeah. is that the Samaritan is characterized as someone who has resources, who yeah. has money, who has time. So it's not even it's not even just that they were, yes, they considered them less than human, but it's not because they were you know, illiterate or financially yeah. unstable or unable. It was just that. No, they are literally, to put it in common terms of, you know, 21st century, they were the other. Yeah. They were, they were the ones we were supposed to hate because of who they were. Yep. Or where they yep. came from. Yep. And so Jesus um, uses. And even the oppressor at, at yeah. some level. Yeah. In some level. I mean, if you crossed through their territory um, as a Jew, you would probably die or end up like the guy did in the story, right? Beaten, um, bleeding on the side of the road. Um, and Jesus uses him as the example. Um, but what, what's so interesting, so, I mean, there's more to say about that that I could, but for sake of time, um, right? The, the, the way he ranks the rabbinic yoke and the way that structure works is it's which law is heavier, right? Is the way they would sort of phrase that, which has more weight. So love God has more weight than love neighbor, but love neighbor has more weight than every other law that comes after. And so if, if you are to, you love God, and if anything that you do that you're planning on doing contradicts loving God, you don't do that thing and you love God instead, right? Okay, so love God. Now let's about love neighbor that's next so if it's gonna love god cool then we love neighbor if anything we're planning on doing doesn't love neighbor you don't do that thing but you love neighbor instead but if loving neighbor doesn't allow you to love god you stop loving god or you stop loving neighbor and you love god instead now what's interesting about that right 
is that biblically in the Old Testament, the idea of um, of God and humanity is intertwined in a way that we don't typically pick up. And Tim Mackey talks about this, and um, I believe it's his sermon series, American Idols, um, his one on image. So the, the Hebrew word for image, I can't remember it off the top of my head right now, um, is, you know, same as idol, right? Image, yeah. idol, it's, it's well, all the same. Because creation is a temple. Yeah. And so... It's also why idolatry is so blasphemous. Because God, we're not supposed to make an idol of God, right? But God made an idol of himself, which is us. And so we are to revere other humans like the pagans would revere the idol of a god. And so Judaism and Christianity have the value of human life all wrapped up in their essence. Like you can't break away from that. Um, and so your initial question, what's a belief that I have that is scandalous um, that got me on this whole tangent? And I said, uh, faith and works. Faith and works. Um, I think the definition of a Christian, at least in large part, comes down to acting out those yokes or that rabbinic yoke, right? And so that necessitates, I mean, Shema is the first word spoken in that response, and it means hear and obey, hear and do something. There's an action inherent in it. And so I would agree 100% that, um, I mean, just go quickly to James, right? You know, faith without works is dead or, you know, um, you, my, my favorite way to phrase this is you show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what the balance is there, but I think that we, in Western Christianity have separated the two out so finely and black and white that um, we've destroyed what we really had to begin with. So I yeah. agree. That's um, a scandalous view or backing up your scandalous view. Maybe I should say. Yeah. And I, I guess I would, um, define it more by saying not salvation by works yes but the proof of salvation being your faith what heiser i think so rightfully um phrases as believing loyalty um you're going to prove that loyalty yeah. by how you act yeah or you're going to prove that you're actually loyal to something else yeah well i mean let's just take so I'm a big, big guy with, I, we were talking about this earlier, the, the analogy of God and his people and marriage and stuff like that. And one, one day I'll have to get into that with you because I think that'd be a great conversation. Oh yeah. Um, but how do, like I made a, a year ago, almost a month from now, I got married. And Congratulations. 
Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, now I wear this ring to show everybody, myself, the whole world, everyone who sees me that I'm married. But people should also be able to tell that I'm married based on the way that I behave towards other people, other women specifically, and how I treat my wife, right? That the covenant that I made isn't just about recognizing the fact that I'm married. It's about walking that out actively in everything that I do, right? Now I'm only in this thing less than a year. So many mistakes, like I have, and will probably continue to make many mistakes in this covenant thing called marriage. And I won't do it perfectly, but there is an action necessitated in that covenant inherently. There's a promise, there's a commitment, there is a belief and there is an action. I don't know if there's a better place. Probably not. Probably not. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, Daniel, I'm um, so happy to get to talk to you, man. Uh, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. The trend is blend in. Hindsight is a vogue view. So let's be honest. Some numbers you just don't lose. Uh, I promise they mean well. Following good intentions, the chances you'll see hell. Funny hell. Never mind, never mind. I just ain't going they route. Know what they own, what they bout. And I ain't got the time to play them mind games. Uh, man, I ain't trying to play them mind games. Listen to me.